5: Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. worldafropedia.com
6: and Somebody would say, what does that mean? Oh, should be do, man. Get with it. You know, to oop to school. <laughs> now, these are people who are supposed to be intelligent. It's not a plan for finding uranium on the moon. Mm-hmm. We're not scientific at all.
7: Now, a moment to remember mathematician Katherine Johnson, who died today at the age of 101. Johnson was a pioneer at NASA. She paved the way for other black women to succeed there. She was a so-called human computer. Her calculations helped launch the first American into space. Johnson's story was featured in the book and Oscar-nominated film Hidden Figures. NPR's Russell Lewis has more.
0: Katherine Johnson was born in West Virginia in 1918. As a young girl, she was fascinated by numbers, and it was clear she was gifted. Johnson graduated from high school at age 14 and finished college with degrees in math and French. She first became a teacher, but then in 1953 took a job at the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, the agency that would become NASA. It was not easy then being black and living in the Deep South, but she got on with her job.
6: Everybody there was doing
0: research. You had a mission, and you worked on it. Johnson was one of a handful of African-American women hired to do computing in the Guidance and Navigation Department at Langley's Research Center in Virginia. Not only did they battle through racism, but sexism, too. As Johnson told public television station WHRO in 2011, none of it held her back. I just happened to be working with guys, and when they had briefings on it,
6: I asked permission to go. And they said, well, the girls don't usually go. And I said, well, is there a law? They said, no. So then my
0: boss said, let her go. And she never stopped going, using her extraordinary computing skills to move up the NASA chain. She hand-computed the trajectory of the first man-launch and continued to be important to the astronauts.
8: This is Friendship 7 at uh,
6: 60 degrees right yaw and holding temporarily over.
0: Before John Glenn flew Friendship 7 to become the first American to orbit the Earth in 1962, he asked her to double-check the math of the new electronic computations. Margot Lee Shetterly authored the book Hidden Figures and told NPR in 2016 that Glenn considered Johnson's calculations part of his pre-flight checklist. So the astronaut who became a hero look to
2: this black woman in the still segregated South at the time as one of the
0: key parts of making sure his mission would be a success. Johnson did calculations for Apollo 11, the first moon landing, and later the shuttle program. President Obama awarded her the nation's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom at a 2015 White House ceremony. In her 33 years at NASA, Katherine was a pioneer who broke the barriers of race and gender showing generations of young people that everyone can excel in math and science and reach for the stars. While much of Katherine Johnson's work was unknown to many, her accomplishments continued to be highlighted later in life. She got a standing ovation at the Academy Awards in 2017, and NASA named the Computational Research Facility in her honor. Russell Lewis, NPR News.
8: That's why we have to think as black people. Stop singing and dancing and start thinking. Thinking and reading. I say reading is more important than watching TV.
9: In 1859, a woman named Harriet
2: Wilson published a provocative novel, a book that called out racism among abolitionists in the North. Today, her story is emblematic of how important pieces of African-American history can be forgotten and then rediscovered. New Hampshire Public Radio's Jack Rodolico has the story. But before you listen, a warning. This report includes the book's title, which uses an offensive slur.
10: Here's one thing historians agree on about Harriet Wilson. Some indomitable part of her spirit allowed her to survive a life on the margins. This is the house.
5: This is the house.
10: What's known about Wilson's story starts here, in this house in southern New Hampshire. A local activist named Jerry Bogus brought me to see it. Wilson was mixed race, and she grew up in this house, which was owned by a white family she was not related to— David Palance lives here now with his family.
11: This is the room
12: where we believe she had her bed.
10: That doesn't look like a room. It, lo- it looks like a maybe an attic. I mean, it's a- that's an attic, but there was a That's
5: the space, but that's what it says in the book. Where will she sleep in the crawl space?
10: And when she left this house at the age of eighteen, Harriet Wilson was on her own. She was poor and in poor health, and she needed to make a living. So she wrote a book. Historians don't know much about Wilson's childhood, but many believe she wrote her novel directly from her own experience. Wilson's book is about a little girl born to a black father and white mother who is abandoned at the doorstep of a white family. The little girl is an indentured servant until the age of 18. The family physically and verbally abuses her. When Wilson published her book just before the Civil War, she gave it a provocative title. She called it Our Nig. That title is the nickname The Family Gives the Little Girl in the Novel. The book did not sell many copies. It disappeared for more than 100 years. And then in the early 1980s, a historian walked into an old bookstore and saw a title that jumped off the shelf.
13: I thought this woman has spirit and she used the N word in the title.
10: Henry Louis Gates Jr. is an acclaimed Harvard historian, and he's best known as the host of Finding Your Roots on PBS. And he's the one who rediscovered Wilson's book in that old bookstore. Gates started researching the author. He connected her name with a Harriet E. Wilson in Milford, New Hampshire. Gates says at the time Wilson's book was first published, Slave Narratives, books like Twelve Years a Slave by Solomon Northup were popular, especially among northern abolitionists. Wilson's book was similar to those stories, with a big exception. Her story wasn't set in the South. What's
14: still
13: confusing to many people, even some of our most distinguished historians, is that it was entirely possible to be an ardent and passionate
15: foe of slavery and still be wittingly or unwittingly
10: racist. Gates got Wilson's book republished in 1983. And it had a cultural moment. Alice Walker had just become the first African-American woman to win the Pulitzer Prize for her novel, The Color Purple. She wrote a blurb for the dust jacket of Wilson's book. And today, Alice Walker says Wilson's book is as relevant as ever.
16: She's also teaching us in a spiritual way about the paucity of substance in people who claim to see your suffering but then they do absolutely nothing. And that is so American in so many ways.
10: And that Wilson's story was uniquely American, that's something that drew Jerry and Bogus to the book. She's the activist who showed me the house in Milford, New Hampshire. Bogus lives in Milford, and as a Black woman living in this mostly white town, a part of her felt like Wilson had written the book just for her.
5: I really empathized with that sense of isolation, being a Jamaican, being a black woman in Milford, that you know that really was like, oh my God, that's me.
10: She says her sons used to come home from school having been called a gang by a teacher or the N-word by a classmate. Harriet Wilson's book inspired her when the book first landed in her lap, she was a stay-at-home mom. Now she's the executive director of the Black Heritage Trail of New Hampshire and the founder of the Harriet Wilson Project. Her activism focuses on highlighting stories of Black history in the state.
5: This park was overgrown and not in use, and this was one that they offered to us to have the statue.
10: The town of Milford let Jerry Ann Bogus erect a monument to Harriet Wilson. It's next to a historic church, a church where abolitionists once worshipped, a church that did not allow Wilson inside to pray.
5: These are moments when you do the right thing. You know, you honor somebody who's done something, you know, and she's not no longer invisible. Her story may not be... It, we're not quite where we want to be yet, but it's a beginning. It's a beginning.
10: And that, says Jerry M. Bogus, is the story of Black history, that if you don't shine a light on a book like the one Harriet Wilson wrote... It will be forgotten. For NPR News, I'm Jack Rodolico in Milford, New Hampshire. Medical Apartheid, the dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans
11: from colonial times to the present.
4: And as Black History Month comes to a close this week, we're closing the show every day with contributors to the New York Times 1619 Project, 1619, as in the year enslaved Africans first arrived in what became the United States. Joining me for today is Linda Villarosa, a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine. Her essay for the project is called How False Beliefs in Physical Racial Difference Still Live in Medicine Today. Linda, so nice to have you in here today. Thank you for coming. Thank you. You, And you write about how the the racist beliefs that led to errors in medical science continue to influence care today. So this isn't just a history piece. Uh, One of the most persistent, according to your piece, is the myth that black people are impervious to pain. Can you talk about where that myth came from?
2: Well, um, I opened the essay with this story of an enslaved man Um, named John Brown, who was tortured in the name of medical science. And he was put over a pit of hot coals in order to test his heat tolerance to create a cure for heat stroke. So then later the same doctor, who he had been lent to a doctor as a guinea pig, um, wanted to prove that black skin was thicker than white skin and really tortured this man using, you know, sharp instruments, fire to, to prove this. He was so damaged that he couldn't work anymore. He escaped and wrote his biography Um, in England. It was amazing. And his biography is beautiful. The way it's written, it's in his own voice and talks about this torture. And the assumption was, is that black people really have extremely high pain tolerance. And so this was used um, in order to keep people enslaved, to justify whippings and beatings and things like that. Um, but it seems so harsh and terrible, but and it is. But the interesting thing to me was that it wasn't just regular people saying that. It was doctors and scientists who believed it and were using sort of medical jargon and medical journals to prove this. And the fact that it's this same kind of myth, not to the same degree, but still persists today in medical circles is scary.
4: How do you see it in medical circles today?
2: Um, there was a study in 2016 that um, interviewed w- white um, residents and medical uh, students and residents. And so it asked them to rate black and white pain or to say, um, do black people feel pain differently? Do white people feel pain differently? As well as other physiological differences, including thickness of the skin. Are there more, do black people have more nerve endings? It was kind of like, odd. does the Mm. black blood coagulate differently? And a significant number of medical students and residents believed much of that mythology, even though some of it was so false as to be fantastical. It should be things that medical students shouldn't believe.
4: Another persistent physiological myth that you write about is the false belief that black people have weaker lungs. That also was used to uphold slavery, right?
2: Exactly, and it may have been first started by Thomas Jefferson as a throwaway line in his um, report, state as treaty, state notes on the state of Virginia, and he just said it kind of casually. This idea of weak lungs, but it was picked up by doctors at the time, um, southern doctors, and so it was kind of like used to um, justify slavery, but also. Pushed the idea that slavery was actually beneficial to enslaved people. And so the way that myths still persist today is there's a, an instrument called a spirometer. And it was used by one of the people who really pushed this idea during enslavement that um, enslaved people had weak lungs. And he used this to measure lung function with the idea that black lungs were 10 to 15% deficient. Mm. So Even many of the modern-day spirometers still have that race correction of 10 to 15%, but assumes that black lungs are weak.
4: Wow. And this um, man, Samuel Cartwright, who you write about, was a physician and professor at what is now Tulane University. So it's another example of what you were saying before. This wasn't just sort of, you know, ignorant lay people. These are people who were employed in the sciences and should have known better or should have known how to look at things.
2: Yes, that's what is strange. And sometimes when I'm speaking about it, people laugh because some of Cartwright's ideas were so crazy. Um, He believed that there was this physical problem called drapedomania, which caused enslaved people to escape, and he called it a disease. But I said this person was legitimized. He was a doctor in these times and a scientist, well-regarded.
4: Um. One more. You read about the physician, J. Marion Sims, who has been long venerated as the father of modern gynecology. Now, listeners to this station may know um, that, you know, from our coverage in 2018 or coverage in a lot of places, that he had a statue uh, on Fifth Avenue along Central Park that the de Blasio administration had removed. So what is his legacy now? So
2: the idea that he was the father of modern gynecology um, was upheld for many years until it came out that he was using enslaved women, torturing them um, to perfect a kind of surgery to repair fistula. So once that came out, it was really at least partly due to activism by black women wearing medical robes in front of that statue, which was across the street from the New York Academy of Medicine. Um, you know, uh, out there with blood-stained robes gowns saying, please, this is in honor of the main three women he tortured, Anarka, Lucy, and Betsy. There is a direct through line to today. Um, in 2019, last November, there was a new study that came out that said black women are under-medicated for pain of caesarean section. So that's a reproductive um, surgery that black women remain under-medicated when in pain, even though they're, they complain more about the pain, or the pain may be higher. They receive l- less medical um, intervention and less pain management. So that, to me, is a direct through line to Dr.
4: Sims. What do you think the cause today would be of not giving the same pain medication to patients in the same condition?
2: It seems like, from what these studies say, that it's unconscious bias, that it's not something... You know, doctors don't go into medicine to do harm. In fact, they want to do no harm. So to see them harming people makes it make to me, it seems like it's unconscious. They don't know. It's people different from them, different race, different class, and so they just don't have the same kind of sensitivity. And so unconscious or implicit bias training for medical providers is really sort of the going trend.
4: Another one that I've heard about, I'm not sure if it's in your article, is Um, The perception that black people tend to have higher blood pressure and so doctors have at times seen high blood pressure in black patients and said well that's normal for you
2: black people do have higher blood pressure and so that's real Um, but I think the cause may may, may be up in the air some people have said that it's a strict biological problem when it may be a, in reaction to discrimination in society. The lived experience of being black in America may be causing us to have higher blood pressure than um, other people of other races.
4: But saying normal for you to the extent that that goes on or has gone on in the past means uh, that black people with high blood pressure weren't getting the same treatment as white people with high blood pressure to control it.
2: Exactly. And so you I mean the the bottom line is you really cannot <laughs> say a race of people have X, Y, or Z physiological differences. Medicine is individualized, but I mean, but I think some questions you have to ask are what are the stressors that may be causing some of these physiological problems?
4: And we will have to leave it there with Linda Villarosa, a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine. Her essay for the 1619 Project is called, How False Beliefs in Physical Racial Difference Still Live in Medicine Today. Very illuminating for people who didn't know. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we will continue through the end of the week with writers from the 1619 Project in this final week of Black History Month here on the Brian Lehrer Show.
6: Sixty miles away, they had had the Tulsa riots years before I was born. But they never talked about them. Never? Florida. It was a slaughter. They never talked about it. The old folks never talked about it when wow. I was in Oklahoma. Wow. I heard a rumor about it. I didn't know what to think. Wow. What do you remember, like, what? started it what what uh,
17: what, yeah. what made all this
6: country. yeah yeah a, 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 a black teenager was on the elevator carrying a big box and trying to carry the box he stepped back and bumped up against a white woman. end of story right his own. people formed at the you know he was arrested people formed at the jail black people showed up, somebody, you know, everybody had guns, including black people back in those days in Oklahoma. Somebody fired a shot, and that was it. Stampede was on. Called out the National Guard, which is all white, and they added to it, shooting every black person they saw. It wasn't a riot. It was
18: war. And it's time now for StoryCorps. On this final Friday of Black History Month, we have a conversation with the first African-American woman to join the Coast Guard. Olivia Hooker of Muskogee, Oklahoma, joined the Coast Guard in 1945 and recorded this StoryCorps interview shortly before her death in 2018.
19: This is Olivia J. Hooker. I am now 103, and I was the first black woman entering the Coast Guard. I hadn't known anything about boats before, and I was assured that I would never do any job but scrub decks and wash big pots and pants, but by Jiminy, I never washed a pot, never scrubbed the deck. There were girls from so many places. It was so interesting to hear their tales. There were so many things that really impressed me at how different life was in an African-American home. One thing I've learned is that it's a good thing to follow an order. But there are times when it makes sense not to follow an order. Being in the military, it means a great deal to me because I truly think Everyone should do what they can to sustain their country. Olivia
18: Hooker, the first African-American woman to join the Coast Guard. In 2015, President Obama recognized her career and legacy in a commencement address at the Coast Guard Academy. Olivia Hooker died in 2018, just two months after this interview was recorded, and her conversation will be archived with many others at the Library of Congress.
6: Do you think it's possible that 300 to 400 people could have been killed? Sure. You know, killing a black person, you don't get no time for that. You don't don't even get called in court. You know, killing a black person is like killing a roach.
16: In August of 2014, a 911 call was made in Bladen County, North Carolina.
8: It's a black male subject. Hanging from the swing. Yeah, he's hugging himself. He's hugging.
16: That black male was 17-year-old Lennon Lacey. Authorities told his mom, Claudia, he killed himself. After a review, the FBI agreed. But the area had a history of young black men found hanging. His friends and family didn't believe he'd taken his life. His mom spent much of hers trying to get that decision reversed.
19: Think about it as if it was your son or your daughter. If you knew in your heart and in your mind That someone took your child's life and everything that you've done is humanly possible. They've taken it and twisted it and turned it. How far would you go to get to the truth?
16: And that is the focus of the documentary Always in Season, which premieres on PBS's Independent Lens Tonight and tells the story of Lennon Lacey's death, but also widens that lens to the history of lynching. Director, co-writer Jacqueline Olive joins us now from the NPR West Studios in Culver City, California. Jackie, welcome. Thank you, Robin. And I first thing I have to mention is you are African-American. I can't imagine sitting with some of the despicable footage of lynchings that you must have been going over and over in edit rooms. I mean, this is, much of this is crushing. It's tough. I, you know, as
9: a a black mother, my son was Lennon's age when I learned about his death. Uh, My son was also 17. And so as a black mother, I'd uh, been having conversations with him that were very general about protecting himself and about racism and racial violence. I could imagine that those were the same conversations that Claudia had with Lennon. And in fact, when we met, she talked about that, about how they had spoken Um, about Trayvon Martin's death and uh, cautioning Lennon about wearing hoodies. And so in all of those ways, I could relate to Mm -hmm. the pain that Claudia must be feeling. I could imagine it. And then there were the depths that I could not imagine. I couldn't imagine what it must be like to suspect that your child might have been lynched. And so Mm -hmm. with those questions and also having spent four years filming in communities where people were looking at historical lynchings, looking at how they can memorialize the victims and what they can do for justice and repair, I went to Bladenboro and was really struck by the similarities between the communities where I'd been filming and what was going on there, the nightmare that
16: Claudia and other people were facing. Well, so you'd already been filming things that we see, like, for instance, there are reenactments of a terrifying lynching in this area, the 1946 Moores-Ford lynching. Two black couples at Moore's Ford Bridge in Georgia in 1946 pulled out of their cars by a a white mob, Ku Klux Klan mob. I mean, it's just horrific. There are reenactments of this. In fact, we hear from one of the reenactors, a black woman, who is sort of re-traumatized as she reenacts something that's in uh, the area's history. It makes me feel empowered because I'm helping to hopefully
5: bring some closure to what happened with these families.
16: And we also meet in your film the daughter of a Klansman who was taken to a lynching as a child.
8: It was hard to believe that that was really my dad and his friends that I knew that ate fish and hush puppies at the house. But it was. It was the
9: same people. Olivia Taylor was, um, uh, she was new to the reenactment and had come to consult about... The costumes that they were using of the Klansmen, and because her father was um, one of the leaders of the Klan in Stone Mountain, Georgia, she understood um, what their authentic dress should look like. And as she worked with them, she decided for the first time in her life to act mm-hmm. and to play
16: one of the roles in the reenactment. But it's so fascinating because you you have these reenactors and their story of you know what to some might be ancient history. You know, you show people debating not just white. Townspeople, But Black as well saying, why are we doing this reenacting? Why are we, you know, bringing this up again? Let history rest. And meantime, you have Claudia Lacey saying, it's not history. I think it happened to my son. That's right. And Claudia has always, from the very beginning... Um, wanted answers,
9: um, whether or not Lennon committed suicide or whether or not he was lynched. Um, She wanted to know, and she didn't want just a cursory investigation, but she wanted people to give her evidence. And she's never felt like the officials uh, showed up for that case, for Lennon's death, in an appropriate way, given the history of lynching in this country. This film um, is really about the lessons that we miss when there's cover-up and there's silence and denial around this history. Um, And it's also about how this violence has evolved today. And so it's really, for me, very clearly played out in Bladenboro.
16: Well, for you, very clearly. And frankly, as someone who's watched the film, it seems very clear This young man went off to play a football game that night. He had a lot going for him, and the next day he shows up hanging from a swing set. Uh, We hear from a mortician who says there were bruises on his arms. He fought someone off. Yet we hear from white officials, FBI, that, no, we've investigated, and it's a suicide. And then suddenly there's another storyline, another thread emerges which is that Lennon Lacey, who's 17 and black, is dating the 32-year-old white mother of three who lived just a few yards from Lennon's home in a a hard scrabble trailer with a white couple who seemed pretty shaky and shady. I mean, uh, they were called drug dealers. We see home video of them encouraging boys to fight. It's sort of like a fight club that they're running. And they hated that Lenin was dating this white woman, Michelle, who was living with them. After he's found hanged, they disappear. The trailer, completely gone. The implication is they did this. Sure. Well, that aspect of it, and, and we looked at I
9: for a while I was weighing whether or not to take a more investigative reporting approach, a more whodunit approach Um, and it was kind of a rabbit hole that I was measuring like how far do I go down but what I realized is that what's really um, important to convey short of having um, an answer which I never found about exactly what happened to Lennon although there's lots of information
16: that came up out of the community Well for instance uh, when Lennon was found hanging he was wearing completely different shoes than when he left the house that night. They weren't his. They were two sizes too small. That's right. Claudia's always insisted that um, that's important evidence that should be considered, um, and uh, that didn't feel like it was adequately addressed. So we're left with this question, and this, you know, it seems like thoughtful people on both sides, you know, people who say this is a mother who just didn't want to see that her black son was too young to be dating a 32-year-old white and somewhat hard woman, and they broke up, and that's what broke his heart, and others saying it's clearly evidence of a lynching, a modern-day lynching. And in fact, you have activists who point out that there are other, quote-unquote, suicides of young black men that their families also don't think were suicides. That's one of the parallels between the past and the present. Um,
9: historically, less than 1% of the nearly 5,000 documented cases of lynchings ever went to trial for murder. And when investigators, uh, historically and currently, when they don't appropriately investigate um, these cases, then the community, historically and currently in Blaytonboro, are left with rumors, speculations, and stories. Um, and all of that information, all of the um, Speculation about Dewey Sykes and Carla Hudson. Those were the white neighbors living in the trailer. Yes, um, and Michelle and all those stories that will start to dissipate over generations.
16: And do you know, Jacqueline Olive, if the FBI, if the town officials ever sought out uh, Dewey and Carla and Michelle, the white people in the trailer next door?
9: I don't know if they did. I actually I reached out to. The uh, chief of police, the medical examiner's office, the coroner, the district attorney, and other officials, and none of them would talk. And um, we ultimately submitted a FOIA request to the FBI and received a 10-page redacted summary that didn't really give us enough details to know who they talked to and what specifically they based
16: their decision on. Well, I have to say, uh, we were, I was so struck by the opening image of your film. It's a tight shot of a clothespin, and then we see a laundry line an image to replace maybe the others that we're going to see. But we know immediately this is about a mother's love, you know, a mother hanging her laundry. Absolutely.
9: And 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 how do you live with this? Um, and how, um, not just does Claudia live with this, but um, how do communities move forward is really, um, I think, the broader question. And it's
16: something that is equally as important as finding out absolutely uh, what happened to Lennon. Jacqueline Olive, director of the documentary Always in Season about the death of Lennon Lacey. Uh, his family feels it was a lynching. It was ruled a suicide. And the history of lynching. It airs on PBS stations tonight. For more, go to org. Jackie, thank you so much. Thank you, Robin, for having me.
20: Yeah, the listener,
6: he said that it just... Yeah, is he not- made one his record clean. Of course, from what I understand, they were, they were booked with some pretty serious charges. I mean... Uh, something in the area of subversion or sabotage or something like that, you know.
11: hmm Yeah, they. Uh, that's that's what the governor signed it today, as a matter like just a couple hours ago. Uh, oh,
6: let them, to let to, In other words, to exonerate them. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Well, yeah,
14: they did that today. Yeah.
6: Uh,
14: I even thought that was. <laughs> uh, it was almost reminding me of. Uh, Racial
6: showcasing because all of 'em are dead except for one. So I mean, it's I mean I guess it's nice. Oh yeah, it's like freeing the slaves after all of 'em are dead, I man. You know. yeah, exactly.
7: Tomorrow, the U.S. House could finish work that it began 120 years ago. In that year, 1900, the country's only black congressman, George Henry White of North Carolina, introduced a bill to make lynching a federal crime. The bill died in committee. Tomorrow, the House will vote on a similar bill. It would outlaw both lynching in particular and mob killing more broadly. The Senate has already done this, which means the legislation could soon land on President Trump's desk. Amy Kate Bailey is a sociology professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She studied the history of lynching in the United States, and she joins me now. Hey there, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So I want to go back to 1900 and George Henry White, and just what was the situation, what were the circumstances that prompted him to introduce this bill?
21: Yeah, the um, late 19th and early 20th century were pretty abysmal times in uh, the history of race relations in the United States. The 1890s was definitely the pinnacle of what we consider the the lynching era. There were more than a thousand documented lynchings that took place just during that 10 year time span. That was coupled with a rapid political move toward disenfranchisement of the African American male community.
7: I'm trying to imagine what it must have felt like for him. I mentioned he was the only black congressman at the time, so he's making this case to a sea of faces of white lawmakers. Why, Why did it fail? You know, I think there was an attempt to frame lots of these issues
21: as localized issues. And that, and that I think has been an intentional uh, political strategy, particularly on the part of representatives from the southern states on a variety of issues.
7: I should know that the measure of the House is poised to vote on is formally named the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act, named for Emmett Till, the, the black teenage boy lynched in Mississippi in the 1950s. Why did it take 65 years from that? Why do you think the moment seems to have finally arrived for, for this legislation to make it through?
21: I mean, I think as a culture, we have failed to reckon with the history of uh, racist violence in the United States. Okay. There were probably close to 5,000 incidents like this that took place in the United States. You know, the scope of that violence is, is a little mind boggling. We've underplayed it in our public education systems. We've underplayed it in terms of our understandings of ourselves as a culture and as a society. You know, frankly, this this legislation
7: is long overdue. I saw House Majority Leader Sonny Hoyer saying something right along those lines when he announced the vote. He put out a statement saying, this bill is long overdue, but, but it's never too late to do the right thing. Is that the way you see it?
21: Absolutely. I've heard some commentary that this is an unnecessary piece of legislation and that it just opens old wounds and it's it's merely a symbolic effort. But I think there's nothing wrong with having symbols that stand up and say, we affirm that this kind of violent terrorism is not going to be accepted in our country, in our society. And frankly, I mean, we still have incidents like the Charleston church massacre, right? We still have instances like the uh, Charlottesville 2017 incidents where there were people who lost their lives. and. And we're intrinsically based on racial dynamics and racial inequality. If, if we are trying to say that we are beyond this moment in our nation's history, we're fooling ourselves.
7: As you're saying, it's this can be both symbolic, both a way of addressing past wrongs, but also really, really relevant today in 2020. Absolutely. That is Amy Kate Bailey. She's a sociology professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She joined us via Skype. Since you're my special friend, come closer for a special treat. I'm
14: going to let you touch me in a special place.
4: It
9: is never okay to touch someone else's private parts. Your mom and dad will tell you so. Let's look
22: now at the significance of that verdict, not just for the Weinstein case, but the larger questions around assault, the law, and the Me Too movement. Fatima Goss Graves is the president and CEO of the National Women's Law Center. The center works to change the laws to make it easier for women to come forward. Welcome to the news hour. Thanks for having me. So you issued a statement after the verdict. It read in part that the statement, the verdict today rather, delivers what you called a measure of justice. Not full, undeniable justice, but a measure of justice. What did you mean by that? Well, you know, my thoughts are with the silence breakers generally
23: today, and it wasn't every count. But what we know is that there was some justice, and I hope it begins to bring them some healing. You know, they did not uh, find him guilty on the charge that really looked at the pattern of conduct that he had and for the silence breakers who came forward in spite of all of the risk and had to sit in that courtroom as the defense really brought up every sort of rape myth imaginable, I really hope that the verdict today gives
22: them some sort of feeling of justice and healing um, and relief. It's worth reminding people, I think more than 80 women have come forward with some kind of allegations against Harvey Weinstein since 2017, although this trial was based on just those testimonies of the six women. I I do want to ask you, though, we were waiting to see what the defense attorneys had to say. Mr. Weinstein did not take the stand in his defense. They've put out a statement in response to the verdict um, saying that they will appeal. They also said that there are issues in the trial that they said were extremely troubling and they prejudiced Mr. Weinstein's ability to have his case fairly judged. That's a statement from his defense attorneys, Donna Rattuna. and Damon Chironis, but the defense rested their case in part on this idea that if someone raped you, why would you ever be in touch with that person? Why would you remain in contact with that person? And that is really what they went after Jessica with in, in cross-examination. It complicated prosecutor's case. How did you look at that moment?
23: Well, you know, I actually looked at it as the life cycle of a survivor is not at all what they were describing. It's very common not to come forward right away. It's very common, especially if this is a person who's in the same business as you, to see that person. And And so what happened in that courtroom is they kept putting out every sort of rape myth that is so sticky in our culture, and the jury clearly rejected it. They instead relied on what is far more typical survivor behavior. I think that that is an important thing for that courtroom, but it actually demonstrates that perhaps we've had some real progress in this last two years of people really understanding what violence looks like in this country.
22: There was another part of their defense I want to get your take on, which was that this is not about what you may believe to be true about this man, it's about what you can prove to be true in a court of law. And as we all know, with rape cases, with sexual assault cases, you're talking about what happens between two people, typically when they're alone. How do you balance that when you're talking about accountability and the burden of proof in a court of law? and reconcile that with this rallying cry and the message of believing women in this moment in time. Of course, there's
23: lots of ways to judge credibility of witnesses, not just in sexual violence cases, but in any cases. And there are often no witnesses to particular crimes. But it's only in the issue of sexual violence where we start with this narrative and trope that the person is likely lying. That is one of the stickiest things that we had to disrupt. And the the defense attorneys continue to put that myth out there that they are likely laying and and did so not just in the courtroom but in op-eds and in interviews outside of the courtroom as well.
22: You know there was this big question when these six women came forward and took the stand and shared their stories, will it matter? Will powerful men like Harvey Weinstein be held accountable in some way? You know it took Dozens of stories. It took New York Times breaking stories. It took all of these women coming forward. It took years and years and years for this one man to be held accountable. It's not necessarily inspiring for a lot of women who could look at that and say... I could go through that, too. What, what do you say to that?
23: Yeah, here's what is inspiring, because you are totally right that um, we had to have two different investigations, books detailing the allegations, prosecutors finally bringing it. But I have been inspired by the fact that so many people did come forward, not just about allegations around Harvey Weinstein, but allegations about their own personal abuser across sector. These silence breakers ignited a movement. And for the last two years, people have been telling their stories. They have been upending institutions. They have been prompting states to introduce and pass laws. We've had over 200 laws, 200 bills introduced in states. And over 10 states have actually passed laws to improve their harassment, uh, the way harassment works in their state. That's just in recent years. That is just the last two years, right? That that is real progress, we're not done, right? We won't be done until everyone can tell their story and
22: know it will be received and taken seriously and something important will happen. Fatima Gossgraves of the National Women's Law Center, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me.
10: Uh, our uh, pig meat mark, uh, you know, here come, here, come <laughs> here come the judge. Here come the judge. Here come the judge. the judge.
18: Judge LeBlanc had to make a decision that was in the best interest of her family. As a family, they decided it's time to close this chapter and move on.
20: One of the groups who got what they wanted tonight, though, says there is still plenty of work to be done. Now, since Judge Jessie LeBlanc's sudden resignation, there's a scramble to reshuffle a bunch of cases. Just four nights ago, she admitted to calling black people the N-word because she wasn't going anywhere. As Scotty Hunter reports tonight, all of that has changed, and let's just say, Judge Jessie LeBlanc, even though she's resigned, is not going away quietly.
17: Jessie LeBlanc is out, officially resigning from her post as judge in the 23rd Judicial District, effective immediately. But those who pushed hard for her removal do not call it a victory.
14: Are we happy that somebody that used the N-word is no longer having the opportunity to preside over members of our community? Yes, but victory? No, because we shouldn't still be fighting these issues in 2020.
17: In a stunning reversal from what she told WAFB just days ago in an exclusive interview, LeBlanc has now decided she can no longer serve. The move comes less than a week after she came clean to me about her racially charged text messages and just one day after Governor John Bill Edwards called on her to call it quits. Her attorney, Joe Kraft, says LeBlanc had no other choice.
18: Really, from her perspective, she's got to, at the end of the day, protect her kids and her husband. And when you start receiving the volume of hate mail that she has. I mean, the only logical decision is it's time for me to step back for now.
17: The former judge did not go quietly, though, using her resignation letter as a final chance to speak her mind, alleging that other judges in the 23rd Judicial District knew about the affair and did nothing, that her former lover, Bruce Prejean, also had an affair with the law clerk from another judge, and that the attacks against her were basically a smear campaign by the district attorney, Ricky Babin.
18: If the district attorney wants somebody prosecuted, that doesn't mean they're guilty. And she pointed to a very significant situation early on in her tenure where she found somebody correctly not guilty. The evidence wasn't there. For that, doing her job, which is what she's supposed to do, she suffered the ire of the district attorney, and it's gotten worse since then.
17: While the DA did not address that case specifically, he responded in a statement to WAFB saying, in part, I regret that she's blaming me for her demise. I received facts that I'm required by law to make notifications on, and that's what I did. LeBlanc's attorney also taking time to call out others for the ongoing threat she says have plagued the former judge in recent days.
18: Her fax machine has been jammed with essentially hate faxes to her office. Um, because of irresponsible journalism, not y'all. Her private telephone number was published. So as you can imagine, since that story was first run, her telephone has been um,
17: ambushed. The NAACP filed this formal complaint this week with the state Supreme Court citing our report and calling for the judge to be removed. Leaders with the group called their action necessary and say calls for justice also came from the community.
14: We just want fairness for black people. And for all people, and it starts with each one of us. What this really shows is that when we work together, and when we we really stand as one, there's nothing that we can't accomplish. As
17: for what happens next, according to the Secretary of State's office, the Supreme Court will now appoint an interim judge. Normally, a special election will be held, but because LeBlanc had less than a year left in her term, that will not be necessary. Just because there is a resignation in this case now, that doesn't mean it's over for the judge. From your understanding, there could still be repercussions from the state Supreme Court.
9: Correct. The complaint is still out there, even though Judge LeBlanc has resigned. Um, I think it's going to be up to the Judiciary Commission to decide if they want to move forward with the investigative process.
17: Marla Dickerson with the Southern University Law Center tells me this is a bit of a gray area, but from what she understands, the judiciary could still act on the formal complaint, even though LeBlanc has now stepped down.
9: There are other outcomes, such as admonishment, if... The commission decides that um, Judge LeBlanc's conduct fell below the standard of care of judges.
17: Now a private citizen, LeBlanc, through her attorney, says she will continue to apologize and make amends for the damage caused by her words. She wants to repair um, her public image. How does she do that?
18: But I think how she repairs them in the same way that she built her reputation in the first place. She volunteers in the community. She's been in that community her entire lifetime. And she's always served as an example in the community. Her unfortunate use of inappropriate language on that occasion is no reflection on Jesse LeBlanc as a person, as a Christian, or as a judge.
17: Now, in her letter, LeBlanc also lashed out at the governor, claiming her former lover was also involved in an affair with a high-ranking member of his staff. In a statement, the governor's office slammed the letter as an unfortunate attempt to deflect from her own
15: John Dakota here, putting you in reach of what makes the news of today's broadcast at FamousDockets.com. On the docket, Kobe Bryant's clash with the law. He got arrested! His mugshot is coming up.
24: Millions of Americans are arrested every year, and for many of them, it's one of the worst moments of their lives, something they want to forget. But it turns out that's easier said than done. Their mugshot, the photo capturing that arrest, is on full public display across the internet just a few clicks away from potential employers or landlords. Those mugshots often end up in online galleries published by local newspapers, too. For the last decade, online mugshot galleries have become a pretty easy source of revenue for struggling newsrooms. When readers click through the gallery, each of those clicks means more page views, and more page views equals more advertising dollars.
20: One of the problems with mugshots are they are the worst photo anybody ever gets. It's worse than a driver's license photo. It's just bad. It's usually people in their most anxious moments. They're strung out. They're nervous. It's just a bad photo. And that is what ends up being on the website. That's Chris Quinn, the editor of Cleveland.com. About a year ago, his
24: newsroom started rethinking how they used mugshots after conversations with various leaders in the community.
20: And one raised her hand that asked me if I'd ever considered that the lineup of mugshots that we've been running all these years propagates racial stereotypes. And I have to admit, I had never considered that, but as soon as she asked the question, it resonated. And because we get those mugshots from police departments, we're kind of at their mercy. If they have a bias in releasing mugshots specifically of African Americans, that's what we get. If you went back over the years and looked at all the mugshots, you would see that they skew heavily African American, where the percentage of arrested people does not skew anywhere near that way.
24: Since then, Chris says they've significantly reduced the usage of mugshots in their news coverage. They still sometimes run them in stories about heinous crimes like murder or corruption, but they avoid mugshot galleries altogether. And Cleveland.com is far from the only news organization reflecting on what publishing mugshots means for the people who are in them. Just last month, the Houston Chronicle announced it would stop publishing photos of people who have been arrested but not convicted in its online mugshot gallery. For more on this, we spoke to Carrie Blakinger, a staff writer at the Marshall Project and a former criminal justice reporter for the Houston Chronicle, and Sarah Loggison, an assistant professor at the School of Criminal Justice at Rutgers University, Newark. And I started by asking Sarah who these mugshot galleries disproportionately affect.
25: I think there's sort of two layers of consequences or inequalities that are part of the mugshot issue. Uh, The first is just mass arrests in the criminal justice system. Um, So who are the police more likely to arrest, especially based on somebody's age or race or gender, or if they live in a poor neighborhood or a wealthy neighborhood? Um, But then the second layer of it that's been... I think less discussed is um, if you are arrested, you know, who's more likely to be able to manage their online reputation? So this has to do with people's access to technology and resources. So so not only are people disproportionately likely to be arrested, but once arrested, it can be very difficult to, to actually manage the digital uh, reputational consequences.
24: Sarah, why are news organizations starting to have these kinds of conversations now?
25: I think that news organizations are starting to hear from lots of people um, who are taking issue with this. There's, you know, 11 to 13 million arrests made per year. And a mugshot, you know, when it goes online, it stays online. So we're talking about a cumulative effect of millions and millions and millions of photos. And at first, I think people were really afraid and scared when they found their mugshot online and, and did everything possible to avoid it. But increasingly, now that it's just become so widespread, I think people are asserting their Internet privacy rights and they're going after newsrooms in there and they're making um, the staff have conversations about this. And, and I think newsrooms, like any other institution, looks to see what their peers are doing. And, of course, the backdrop of this is criminal justice reform. America thinks really differently about the criminal justice system and the way that it punishes. So I think that the mugshot issue is part of this broader change that we see.
24: Is this a, a uniquely American practice?
25: It absolutely is. This is um, something that that in America, we have different sets of public policies that guide the release of criminal justice data. So court records and police records are sort of managed through public records requests, while a person's rap sheet is actually managed through the state police typically. And is is a lot harder to get access to. In Europe, for instance, they would take all of these different types of criminal justice data and consider it all private. There is a more articulated right to privacy in Europe. There is a serious concentration on rehabilitation and the ability for people to move on from having contact with the criminal justice system. And then there's just different internet privacy rights in Europe. you have the right to be forgotten, where you could petition to have your Google search results changed in Europe the way that you can't do in the United States.
24: Kerry you've had firsthand experience with this, right? Uh, this is something you wrote about in the Marshall Project. What did it mean for you to have your mugshot posted online for anyone to see or access?
26: Well, my mugshot was also a I think particularly stigmatizing mugshot. It looks like one of those sort of faces of math pictures. I was, you know, arrested for heroin, and I had sort of scabs all over my face, and like, you know, my hair is all messed up. So it's a very specific type of mugshot that people like to gawk at. Mm -hmm. And um, after I got out, because I mean, obviously, when I was in jail, I wasn't reading the comments, I wasn't checking my email. But after I got out, there was a whole slew of, you know, some pretty nasty messages from things like just telling me they hope I rotted in prison to um, calling me names I can't repeat on the radio to just saying that, you know, I deserved to die or describing how police should have killed me. And obviously those are strangers on the internet. Like, it's it's not great to read them, but, you know, I'm not going to sit there and like obsess over it now. But it did make me wonder, like, if this is what a stranger who thinks no one knows their name and it's anonymous, like, if this is what their thoughts are and this is what their first impressions are, I would imagine this is what, you know, employers and, potential landlords, like maybe potential friends. I mean, this is what other strangers might be thinking as well and just not saying it. So it really made me think about how stigmatizing those images are and how problematic they can be in terms of restarting your life.
24: Sarah, if someone does want to get their mugshot offline, if they want it scrubbed, is there any sort of path that they can take?
25: Well, right now, if a police department makes a mugshot publicly available, it is totally legal for any other website, including a news website, to republish it. Uh, So... You know, my research has shown that people kind of have three different options. The first is that they could just ask for mercy, essentially. They could reach out to their local news. They could petition to have their photo removed, especially if their record was later expunged or they were found not to be guilty. Um, So that's one option. But, you know, there's not a lot of uh, certainty about what would happen. The second thing they can do is sort of make it part of their narrative and accept that this is widely publicly available through Google search for somebody's name and just sort of manage that new stigmatization The third thing that people do though, and I think this is actually the most common, is to just start avoiding situations that might trigger a Google search. And this becomes actually a public safety problem because all the research we have about recidivism and preventing crime shows that people who have stable employment, strong social bonds, um, are involved in schools or their churches, are much less likely to commit a crime. So if you're avoiding situations, social situations where someone might Google you, there could be consequences down the road. Kerry, do you think
24: that uh, some of the pressure that's being brought to bear on user organizations? has to do with the changing demographics of who works in the industry? Are there more people of color who are sort of pressuring
26: editors to change their practices? I think that journalism still has a huge diversity problem. I think it's hard to say if if there's still enough of that impact for that to be driving the change. But, you know, I will say that I I think if newsrooms had traditionally been more diverse, if we'd already had more people of color working in newsrooms, you know, maybe this is something we would have grappled with sooner.
24: Yeah. I mean, Sarah, this is, I guess just one way newsrooms are rethinking their coverage when it comes to criminal justice. Any other things that you think we should know about?
25: A big part of this is is to think critically about the role of the media in in criminal justice, watchdogging, and criminal justice reform. Just the bulk release of mugshots um, is just posting police activity on a news website at the expense of the people who are arrested without doing any critical analysis about who the police are arresting or what patterns are emerging from that. So so I think newsrooms have to think about that carefully because in some ways, these mugshot galleries are just legitimizing the criminal justice system rather than keeping an eye on it for their readers.
24: Sarah Loggison is an assistant professor at Rutgers University Newark School of Criminal Justice. And Carrie Blakinger is a staff writer at The Marshall Project. Thanks to both of you for coming on the show. Thank you.
7: Thank you.
4: I watched a white riot in Portland, Oregon on television the other night.
7: In Oregon, some residents say they are so frustrated with Democratic politics, they want to leave the state. No, they do not want to move. Instead, they want to change the state's borders. In their plan, most of Oregon and a chunk of Northern California would break off and join Idaho, a red state. Oregon Public Broadcasting's Emily Curiton reports. More than half of
1: all Oregonians live in the Portland metro area, and a supermajority of Oregon lawmakers are Democrats.
4: We're afraid of what's coming down legislatively. It'll destroy rural Oregon.
1: Mike McCarter lives 200 miles from Portland in a remote town called Lapine, population 1900.
4: And I grew up in the 50s and the 60s, and it was a great time. It was a blue-collar state. He's
1: a leading organizer with a group called Move Oregon's Border for a Greater Idaho.
4: It's a movement to try to maintain our rural values.
1: The messaging hits cultural flashpoints. Idaho has more permissive gun laws and more restrictions on abortion. It doesn't allow sanctuary cities, nor does it issue driver's licenses to undocumented immigrants. Move Oregon's border is circulating petitions in two rural Oregon counties with ambitions to get 20 more on board. University of Oregon political scientist Joe Lowndes says the effort is largely symbolic.
15: One of the ways maybe to see this moment is as a form of political protest and political theater.
1: He says rallying people around state lines and secession has a rich history in the Pacific Northwest.
15: These are largely racially white spaces on indigenous land. So there's something really specific that all these things share.
1: Like 80 years ago when ranchers, miners and loggers on the California-Oregon border staged a rebellion and proclaimed themselves citizens of the state of Jefferson. Come this November, voters can't just change borders. The U.S. Constitution says that requires agreement from three state legislatures and Congress.
9: Particularly Article
1: 4, Section 3. University of Idaho constitutional law professor Shakira Sanders says if the deal went through, California and Oregon would probably lose representatives in Congress.
9: And that's usually not something that states like to
1: have happen. And there's another big green problem. The growing and selling
9: of marijuana in their states.
1: Legal marijuana has become a pillar of the rural economy in Oregon and California, while Idaho still has some of the country's harshest laws against it. Sanders, a black woman who lives in Boise, Idaho, says she's gotten used to contradictions in American society. She's devoted a career to a document that, when it was written, codified both freedom and
9: slavery. It's not that strange that the same constitution that protects an LGBTQ person's right to marry is the same constitution that someone wants to use to create a super conservative mega state.
1: And now that same constitution sets the rules of engagement for a conflict over what it means to be an Oregonian. For NPR News, I'm Emily Curitan in Bend, Oregon.
3: I love how you contrast Seattle compared to cities that are more Black. Um, So Gus, I'm convinced I also want to be on a good plantation I want to move to Portland. I think that will oust Seattle, you know, and um, white people even call it White Whitelandia.
2: On Friday, a jury in Portland, Oregon, convicted a man of murder and hate crime stemming from a brutal 2017 attack on a light rail train. As Oregon Public Broadcasting's Conrad Wilson reports, prosecutors used the attacker's own social media postings to show that he was motivated
9: by
15: white supremacist ideology. On May 26, 2017, Jeremy Christian got on a Portland light rail train. Christian, who's white, began a racist rant directed at two black teens, one who was wearing a hijab. People on the train intervened. There was shouting and shoving as passengers tried to get Christian off the train. Christian responded by stabbing three men. Two of them died.
0: Uh, Assault in the first degree, the verdict is guilty.
15: After a month long trial and nearly two full days of deliberations, Multnomah County Circuit Court Judge Cheryl Albright read the jury's verdict. Christian was convicted on all 12 charges. Family members of the victims in the courtroom gasped when the verdict was read. Christian did not seem to react to the verdict announcement at all. Throughout the trial, Christian's attorneys argued he was acting in self defense. Prosecutors showed jurors surveillance and cell phone footage of the stabbings. And they sought to tie Christian to white supremacist ideology through his social media postings. After the verdict, some of the victims and their families spoke outside the Multnomah County Courthouse in downtown Portland. They expressed a sense of relief and gratitude. Dewana Hudson is the mother of one of the teens who was targeted by Christian on the train, which jurors said was a hate crime.
23: It's been very emotional, very hard for them just glad
9: to see that uh, I can go home and tell him that
15: it's okay now. Jurors also convicted Christian of charges stemming from the day before the stabbings when he assaulted Demetria Hester, who's black, amid a similar racist diatribe. Hester says the jury's verdict sends a message.
23: It let people like Jeremy Joseph Christian know that you're not going to get away with it, that we do have people that care about all of us because black lives do matter. And the people that were killed, they did that out of love and protection.
15: Christian faces the possibility of life in prison without parole. For NPR News, I'm Conrad Wilson in Portland. Context
11: of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, February 29. 2020 so i have been told we got an extra day of black history month this year hope you did something swell with your bonus 24 hours this is our weekly compensatory call in dial in if you have thoughts suggestions observations uh the number two dial 605-313-5164 Audio Assault, number again, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Four, four, Press star 61 if you would like to participate. That number again, 605-313-5164, the code 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate it was sunny today in seattle i went outside walked around got some sunshine felt so great i thought it was cold i was all wrapped up ready to roll felt like i had on too many clothes started to unzip lose a few layers i got in the house i did a little yoga I turned around roughly two hours later. It looked like it was snowing. It was super thick hail on the like. It looked like it was snowing. It was super thick hail, and then it started raining. Seattle weather. Not everything is spectacular on this here plantation. No library funds, got that. But weather is something to be desired. Anywho many things to share before we get started February 29 that means today is the deadline for the cows counter racist yoga retreat Toronto May 21 through May 24 Uh, we are teetering at capacity so you should email definitely sign up today and minimum email Uh, we are not doing the chiming in I didn't know I just heard been talking about the retreat since the beginning of the year in fact I think we've been talking about this since we were in Florida so we've been talking about this for a couple months now and letting people know posting about it on social media and all the rest Uh, so I would hope folks are ready to roll Uh, if you are planning to join us May 21 through May 24 that is a Saturday or excuse me Thursday that is a Thursday through Sunday uh, for the counter racist yoga retreat plant based meals every day, no smuggling cheeseburgers or anything else uh we'll have yoga every day, counter racist workshops we'll do some food workshops as well uh and hopefully we'll have a grand old time uh maybe the weather will cooperate it won't be hailing and raining and all the other madness uh We'll be able to enjoy nice spring late spring, late spring It'll be almost June uh weather in Toronto super excited drop an email if you need more uh, details questions or what have you but today is the deadline for the deposit if you are planning on joining us many things to share I will try to get uh, to them as quick as I can I guess I'll give uh, one more prompt about the passport shouldn't have to do that anymore since we'll be moving on to other things but just I would encourage folks get that passport it's so easy, and again, you don't have to have a plan. That oh yeah, I'm I'm getting my passport because I plan on going to South Africa. You know, in the next I don't know couple of weeks, month, or anything like that. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to have to be that you have a plan for the summer. You know, it's planning on going to the Caribbean. It's planning on going to Brazil. You know. Maybe uh, by the end of the year, that whole uh, coronavirus thing will have calmed down. I can go to Beijing, see what's happening. Get me a mask and go check that out. Investigate a little racism, different part of the world. Anything, just having that passport. Like I said, you never know when an opportunity might come up to go out of the country, go do something. And that could be the obstacle if you don't have that passport. And then it takes, you know, I put my uh, paperwork in. On February 4th and it should be here according to the United States Parcel Service it should be here by Monday so that's March 2nd Uh, it takes roughly 30 days to get so if you just go ahead and get it get the passport book it's good for a decade two years might pass and somebody comes up let's take a trip let's go to the Congo do a counter-racist documentary (laughs) got my passport let's do it Get your passport. And at minimum, at minimum, if you don't have a real ID, enhanced ID, as they call it, passport, now you will still be able to fly come October. You don't even have to go through all that. Washington State, you can get a real ID. It's not that expensive. But I looked in some other states. It's like $200 to get uh, what they call the enhanced ID. Passport is total 145 good for 10 years. The passport book, you can fly domestically and internationally. Get your passport. Get off. Uh, <clears throat> I'll stop with my promos for that. Black History Month. Man, I don't celebrate anything, including Black History Month. One of the more pitiful things that I saw this Black History Month. There was a, a sporting contest last weekend. There is every day in the system of white supremacy. Always an excuse for violence sporting contest between a black male and I think a white man, uh, Deontay Wilder, Tyson Fury, last weekend. They fought. They had fought before. They fought again. Black male lost. I saw an article, and it said black people in the United States are taking this hard. All of the indignity. Watching him lose, be punished and pummeled, and then to blame it on Black History Month that he lost because of his costume. And I just... (laughs) I literally shook my head. No metaphor. <clears throat> they have lots of these type of contests. If you want to talk about uh, boxing, uh, I've seen this with uh, Floyd Mayweather. I think folks remember with Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor, uh, the black fellow won that time. So yes, black America is ecstatic. They'll have this sort of thing all the time. Uh, Muhammad Ali, many, many years ago, probably for a lot of us were born. He fought a white guy, Chuck Weppner They'll do the same type of thing. You rewind back even more. You got me. You go all the way back. Jack Johnson, if you want to go back a century. They love this sort of thing. If the black fellow wins, we're still in a system of white supremacy. Sometimes white people will go, talk about lynching. Sometimes that'll be an excuse to go and shoot and kill up some black people. If the white fellow wins, we're still in a system of white supremacy. And sometimes white people will use that as an excuse to go out and do some killing and lynching. I do not care uh, about any sporting contest dominated by white people even if uh, mr wilder had won i think white people would have made more money off of that bout than he would have regardless of the victor but neither here nor there uh, i am not going to have my emotions pinned to the outcome of any sporting contest in the system of racism and don't you think i will lose the moment to get on my brain damage all of these sports with the brain damage the boxing football they need to get rid of that like right now we don't even need that that's not benefiting anybody Uh, Mr. Wilder might have a brilliant brain computer metaphor Dr. Welsing though Uh, he might have a brilliant brain computer that could help us solve the problem of white supremacy racism we don't need you getting your skull pummeled use your brain computer for something uh, constructive that's what we need we don't need people going out and getting brain damage can't talk can't think by the time they're 45 50 brain damage next <clears throat> the we had uh, Dr. Marsha Chatlin on the program Monday a few days back earlier this week and I made an error victim of white supremacy thank you for your patience but I made an error in getting the upload of the recording at Black Talk Radio Network it should be correct uh, for the many other outlets where it's uploaded but it was incorrect at Black Talk Radio Network thankfully a listener reported my blunder and I was able to make the correction so if you attempted to access that broadcast at black talk radio network, uh, maybe Monday or early Tuesday or what have you like, what is this? This is not, doesn't seem congruent. You can go back and check again. It should be correct there. I believe it was accurate everywhere uh, else, all the other outlets, but great information from Dr. Chaplin. If you had a big Mac or happy meal today, if you have offspring and you stopped to get them a little something from McDonald's, check out that program. Wow. Next. It was so good uh, in the report, even though we'd heard it before, and we read Medical Apartheid and many other books on white supremacy in the medical industry. Uh, but it was good to get the reminder, Drap the Mania, since that is the handle of one of our uh, frequent callers, uh, investors, as to the significance of the name, Medical Apartheid, Harriet A. Washington. Long list. There were so many things today. Mr. Weinstein. uh, Convicted uh, this week. I know many folks uh, had contrasted, myself included. Uh, Bill Cosby, R. Kelly, who's in greater confinement right now, uh, and many other uh, black males uh, who have faced some pretty stiff legal ramifications with the whole uh, Me Too or allegations of sexual impropriety uh, of some sort. Mr. Weinstein is not a black male powerful white man gets convicted not just you know fired and losing a job like Mr. O'Reilly and some of these other folks but oh no convicted folks have any thoughts on that one contrast to Bill Cosby any differences or folks just think this is a white sacrifice they'll let you know one or three white men maybe get convicted or do a little prison time but not a big thing folks have any thoughts on his arrest that would be good another documentary on dead black people I am interested in the Lennon Lacey film uh, because I don't think as many people know about Lennon Lacey even though that's pretty current Uh, in fact that happened 2014 that was the same summer with all the Michael Brown Jr. and Jonathan Crawford III and Eric Garner all of the attention on racism and somehow a black male found hanging from was it a playground swing set in North Carolina that didn't didn't register too much. Should have been a cowbell. Lots of cowbells. Uh, Skip Lewis Gates. Dr. Henry Lewis Gates. Sorry. Lots of cows So many cowbells I couldn't couldn't keep up. It's just been ding, 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 ding. Uh, but Lynn and Lacey too. I, I am appreciative of the fact that maybe <clears throat> some individuals will know about this case who forgot about it or didn't hear about it at all uh, when it first happened. But again, Lots of documentaries on dead black people. Favorite subject matter. New film genre. Candyman 2 or the remake coming out soon as well. Uh, Anachronism. Speaking of lynching. I posted a report on the lynching bill. And when I posted it, I used the word anachronism there are several terms that I think are significant for the cows that have been used frequently on this broadcast or have some sort of resonance for a particular reason I think pseudo scientific bullshit that's one that has some resonance here for uh, a number of reasons Uh, feverish that would be another term that has some resonance there are a number of, of terms that mean something specific here Uh, the term I posted with the lynching bill is anachronism. I taught what I said a few weeks earlier. I said anachronistic thinking that is very common in how we process racism, white supremacy on a pretty regular basis in terms that are used, uh, just ways that we think about, uh, solving this problem. Uh, it's outdated extraordinarily outdated and even you know thinking and processing that you know this is a method for dealing uh, with racism or how you think about white supremacy for them 2020 black history month no less now hey let's roll up our sleeves get our hands in and we are going to get this lynching bill passed and we're going to call it the emmett till lynching bill that's right now Maybe, I guess, if this had been passed, maybe Lyndon Lacey might still be here. Maybe. Maybe a few other black people. Thousands. Maybe they might still be here. I seriously doubt it. But maybe we could have got around to this a little bit earlier. I played the audio segment with Mr. Fuller. He was talking about. That's one of the the clown little racist jokes that they have in the system of racism. Uh, They'll wait. They'll get somebody like uh, Bill Clinton. He'll come out uh, at the Little Rock Nine Monument in Arkansas. He'll come out and say, uh, you know, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, speaking of Harvey Weinstein, uh, we today... In the name of God and all that's good, we we want to give a robust apology. And he did do that. He did apologize while he was in office. He did that. Exactly. He apologized for slavery. He apologized for the uh, Tuskegee syphilis experiment, medical apartheid. We went over that tacky apology when we read Harriet A. Washington's book. He did exactly that. They will come out and do these sort of tacky things when the people that they are coming out. Oh, we're so sorry have been dead for 500 years. We'll come out and do something for slavery. They've been dead for 500 years now, but we want to come out and manumit them today and give them their freedom papers. And we have a great, 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 great cousin that we will give the slave papers to. Or they did the one uh, for the North Carolina. uh, I forgot the name of the town. It was like nine of them. They were accused of, Ben Chavis was in the group. They'll say, well, we're going to exonerate them. That was That was all racism. Uh, we 're going to give them a full exoneration, full part, President Trump did the same tacky thing with Jack Johnson speaking about fighters and brain damage he 's been dead a hundred years and oh we 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 falsely charged him with being feverish, stealing young white girls and taking them across state the man law they call it. We will fully exonerate him, and we will get let 's see does he have we got a cousin we don't have a okay, so we will find a neighbor who is still alive uh, a grandson of a neighbor of jack johnson and we will present a medal of freedom and uh full exoneration papers yes we're sorry jack johnson i do not need a lynching bill anti-lynching bill in 2020 and the funniest part uh louis representative uh he came out and gave his big speech about why this shouldn't be done He had spoke in 2014, I believe it's in the compensatory call and have to check for the date about there being a war on white people to have the same man who's kept his seat in Congress the whole time through Obama and everything came out before war on white people. And he's the first one, I believe, one of the only folks to step up. I don't know about this lynching bill. We're wasting time. You got some pork here and everything on this bill. You're just going to we just put the monument up to to bulletproof the statue. And now we got to do an anti-lynching bill. What about the war on white people? What about a what about a, a bill to protect white people? That's what Representative Gompert had to say. Continuing, <clears throat> I had another one. I'll I'll save that uh, for later once we get a little further into the broadcast. Uh, for this program exclusively, I do request uh, if we could not use metaphors. Uh, this broadcast is supposed to be about being. Mindful about, you know, what we say, not just using any word to articulate our thoughts and views. Uh, If we could be specific, precise uh, racist, they will regularly use analogies, comparisons, metaphors to practice confusion. They will take two concepts, two entities uh, and insist that they are identical, one and the same. Frequently, this is not the case at all. Uh, this is just an act of deception, racism. Victims like myself, we have been exposed to this misconduct for years. Uh, and many of us, myself included, we are still learning as such. Sometimes we don't have logic uh, to articulate a particular viewpoint. And so we'll substitute with a metaphor analogy of some point of some sort frequently this just contributes more confusion again if we can make uh, an effort to be specific exact with what it is that we want to say Uh, if you need more time to formulate your words that is acceptable I will prompt about the metaphors Uh, if you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts views that would be grand Uh, just make sure that everybody has at least one opportunity to speak Uh, if you have additional comments uh, thoughts that you would like to share you can just allow everybody uh, at least one chance to speak uh, and then you can rejoin if you have uh, thought, question observation, whatever it is that you want to share with us Um, let's see if you know you're in a noisy environment if you could use your mute button that would be super appreciated Um, I know some folks you might be with some folks who are watching a replay of the fight, maybe or around other folks who are talking. Uh, if you could maybe find a a quiet spot, relatively quiet spot and make your comments, whatever it is that you need to say. And then mute. Then if you have additional comments, we should have time once everyone else has spoken at least once, uh, you can unmute and rejoin. Uh, let's see. Numbering game. 605-313-5164 The code 564-943-POUND Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Let's see. I'll get my switchboard together here. Uh, First few folks who dialed in. uh, If you have thoughts, questions, observations you would like to share. Uh, Let's see. First few folks who dialed in with a hand up. Line should be open. Feel free to chime in. See, while folks are spectating, getting their thoughts together. Uh, We should be here. I should have said this previously, I guess. Thanks for giving me a free moment. We should be here on Wednesday. Uh, Professor uh, Callie Rose uh, should be here. Uh, She has a new book, uh, Black Women's History of the United States. We will talk about that. Briefly, but that is not the book that someone brought to my attention as to why she's coming on the program. She's written several books. That uh, Black Women's History of the United States is her most recent book. She also published a book uh, that is <clears throat> not very old, published within the last couple of years. Prolific author uh, that is about a case uh, involving a murder that took place some time ago with a racially ambiguous individual. Uh, and there was also a black person involved, uh, but she pointed out this case and talking about it shows a lot about the operations of racism, white supremacy. Because you got a uh, what they call interracial relationship, non-white person in a sexual relationship or arrangement with a white person, and then you got a murder here, uh, and it upset some white people because of the racial ambiguity uh, in terms of messing it up so that they might be confused about the racial classification of someone. You got at least racists. They cannot get confused about those racial classifications, but she should be here on Wednesday. Uh, That will be the main book that we're talking about, but she does have other books. And if folks want to take an opportunity to question about those, I'm told her we'd make sure to plug her numerous material, but she should be with us on Wednesday, March 4th, March 4th, normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific. There we go. Uh, let's see. Uh, other folks dialed in, hand up, much obliged. Thank you for getting done with the spectating. If you have comments, proceed. Can I be heard? Greetings, on D.C. Uh,
13: yes, sir. Greetings. And uh, greetings to everyone. Um, I am American. And again, I think that's important because white people are not american um i've also done a blood test and you know given the my blood to or my dna to white people and they told me that i have a lot of dna from africa and so i'm african and i've read about the history of of what happened of africans coming to america um in many different um, journeys. And so I'm also African and that, that's, that's, that's it. White people need to leave Africa. And I think that more people should say white people should leave, um, you know, leave our areas and go somewhere. We We should figure where they should go. Thank
11: you. Much obliged, M. DC. I had the biggest uh, twist knot in my headset that I was trying to get unplugged. I did have a quick question. Uh, what uh words are important uh what exactly, according to your use of the term, what does one have to do or not do to accurately be branded labeled an American?
13: Yes, sir, so I know what Mr. Nilly Fuller says, and um what what his uh definition is um my definition is a little different um it's about your ancestry my ancestry is american i've i've done dna tests and i have ancestry of black americans coming from reservations um one in particular i'm thinking of um, and so I'm saying like I'm actually an American and then I have ancestry from South America Um, and it's a black person and it's not somebody who was brought from Africa, you know? Um, But I also have African ancestry as in people that were there for, since I can, I can read about, you know, since, so that's what I mean, just the ancestry. But if your ancestry is not, here in America, then you're not American, but it's okay. You know, like Africans, I I want an alliance with Africans, but white people, it's not okay because they're here to kill us. So I'm just,
11: that's, that's my, my reasoning. Okay. I'm just trying to follow logic. Make sure I heard correctly. Uh, I know you have a different definition uh, from other folks. Why I asked specific to you. Uh, And you said that for you, your, your definition, your view, you just have to have ancestors that are quote unquote American. That's generally one that I highlight people using the term that I'm requesting them to explain. And they use the word in the definition. I generally highlight that as something that's incorrect. Um, But ancestors that are so-called American black people, uh, that's what it means to be un-American. You have ancestors that are, so-called American black people connected to this geographic location. Is that accurate?
13: Um, yes, sir. That's, that's what I'm talking about. And I'm talking about like a, a, a number, a certain amount of ancestry, not like a great, 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 great grandparent, like some white people who are still albinos, you know, I'm, I don't even know what the, the, the um, exact
17: percentages but there's a percentage Hmm. okay much obliged
11: thank you for your response we did hear from uh, Dr. Henry Louis Gates uh, he has been affiliated, they had that television program if folks recall uh, where they would do the ancestry uh, thing, they would bring on lots of people I think Oprah Winfrey and all kinds of folks uh, came up, white people, non-white people would come on and they would go back to oh you have you know, this percent you know, African and blah 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 and you related to this so-called slave and all the rest of it, uh, a lot of white people are involved with those uh, tests because you did mention that, man they can go in and do all kinds of things uh, with those tests and come back and you know all kinds of things with the results too. I do think that's significant, but much obliged. M. Han DC. Thank you for sharing. Uh, other folks, I hope people are not just going to spectate for the last, uh, broadcast of black history month. Thomas in New York.
3: Good evening, Gus. Good evening to all the callers. Um, yeah, I was, when I use the term American, I use the definition that's in the, um, 1828 dictionary in it. Won't, you won't find a definition before that one because that's the first dictionary. And um, it says the copper-colored races of people found here by the Europeans that now apply to the descendants of the Europeans. So um, the copper-colored races, which would be brown, you know, that's the definition I use as an American. So you would have to be copper-colored um that would be the first qualification um and white people are certainly not that you know um carby weinstein versus bill cosby was your question um huge difference in how the media um portrayed both incidents in fact my my cousin Uh, Nikki Leach, she jumped out butt-naked in front of Bill Cosby as he was going to court, my actual cousin. I I couldn't believe it. When I was looking at the news, I got the text from my mother like, oh, my God, with all this stuff written on her feminist and crazy. You know, you didn't get the Me Too movement at the Harvey Weinstein um, trial like it was at the Bill Cosby trial. It was a um, total difference in how the news media portrayed it, um, every night they didn't call him a rapist or they didn't, you know, um, indict him before the indictment after the indictment. It was sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah. He's a rapist. But before that, the bill Cosby, he was already guilty before he, um, the trial was over according to the media. Um, and, um, you know, I'm kind of shocked that, um, Mr. Weinstein got any time. However, um, I believe, he could do from either way from six to twenty five years for the two counts. Um, so, um, and he also has to go to Los Angeles. That was this was in New York, so he has to go to Los Angeles and um, face those same counts from women over there. So, this could be the end of uh, Mr. Weinstein. Just looking at his health, it looked like the. Um, <laughs> Old mob movie, Gus, where they all came to court, you know what I'm saying, with the walkers and the and the breathing machines, you know, um, all the bosses. The Anti-Lynching Act, um, I think this is a total act of white supremacy, a political tactic being used by both sides during the election season to force the more black votes. Um, it's illegal to lynch people now. You get caught lynching someone, you go to jail. I mean, that's, or, or you know, that's the rules here. I mean, we don't have the, the time and situation that it once was. So this is just something being politicized. Now, if this is being true, I would like to see them go and get Carolyn Bryant Durham, Donham, excuse me, Carolyn Bryant Donham, the woman who admitted to falsely accusing Emmett Till. Now, she's still alive and free, um, as far as I know, I believe. I can't find anything to show that she's dead. Um, she should be the first person to go to jail as a result of this act. So this is telling me that they're not really serious about this. Um, just to be able to have a bunch of black people behind them as they read this out on the news. And, you know, during the political season, um, this is going to be good. Trump will get to sign this act. And, hey, I told you I'm not racist. You know, it's going to be a total blink show. I'm you, Malanga. Thank you.
11: I was doing my uh, applause. She is still alive. Uh, Carolyn uh, Brian Dunham. She is still alive. White woman, probably still in uh, Mississippi, uh, who lied, practiced racism, white supremacy. And since we talked about that case so frequently, it is alleged she was present for the lynching. That they had to get her in the vehicle to go out that evening to go identify. Yep, that's the Negro, you know, get him uh, to be present. Dr. Curry talked about that. Several of our guests talked about that uh, over the years here uh, on the context of white supremacy. But absolutely, I think some of our other listeners uh, in Alabama, they got that big uh, lynching memorial in Alabama. I have not visited, obviously, uh, but the same thing. I'm sure some of those whites, racist killers are still alive let's do some prosecute let's get those photos out and do some identifying and find where is Uncle Larry where is Carol oh, we already know where she is we don't have to do any work there let's you know get that exactly what he just said get that walker get your breathing machine make sure you got your depend snapped on you are going in the clink uh, other folks who dialed in if you have a uh, hand up comments observations to share number again 605 313 Five one six four the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate.
14: The gender Je-
11: Oh retired firefighter yes sir
14: greetings Gus greetings to uh, everyone uh Harvey Weinstein, Uh, I look at it as a uh, volume issue. Uh, He has a lot of uh, uh, potential uh, incidents that would, uh, I would speak, I would think from a uh, racist logic reasoning, that uh they would make him a sacrifice uh a uh, Harvey Weinstein can be easily replaced uh as a you know white person in a powerful position such as that i don't think that's a problem with uh the global system of racist white supremacy that that can take place and uh also uh if you look closely uh the as they keep saying, the most serious charges uh, he was ruled not guilty on. And uh, also, although he has some more court appearances to make, uh, it all can still come down to the amount of time that he would stay behind bars. Uh, You know, so there's a whole lot of ifs uh, with him but to make a long story short uh oh, well to to summarize everything i would say that uh that's part of the sacrifices that uh the system of racist white supremacy uh enacts sometimes uh i have been uh diligently uh going to a yoga session every tuesday at the Betty T. Ferguson Center, Community Center in Miami Gardens at 11 a.m. The beautiful Mrs. Khadija is the instructor. Uh, Somehow she has been uh, interested in also uh, signing her male child up for the DCS program. So that will be great uh the the fight uh that took place uh non-white people especially non-white black people are very uh sensitive to look for some sort of victories uh <laughs> under the global system of racist white supremacy uh and it has not changed it has not changed since jack johnson uh, uh, Joe Lewis, boxing is very, very fundamental. I, I, it's not a sport. <laughs> it is not a sport. I'm not against it from the standpoint of the training part because I see no difference than that and then going to a gun range as far as developing the skills for protection or self-defense, that sort of thing. Uh, but, uh, as I mentioned before, in sports period, uh, we are always looking for something like that, uh, as opposed to putting our focus on studying white people, what they do, how they're able to practice racism, white supremacy in broad daylight or, or, or in right in front of our faces on a daily basis, uh, uh, and, uh, come to the point to where we ended up, we ended up uh, neutralizing the problem and replacing it with a system of justice uh, is what we should be doing as opposed to looking for these quote unquote victories. But uh, that's all I say. I say thank you for listening.
11: Much obliged, retired firefighter. Uh, if folks remember, uh, if you saw the movie uh, Malcolm X, Spike Lee's version, they got that big scene, Uh, Joe Lewis he beat uh, Max Schmeling the second time they fought he won they had a big mob uh, in Harlem and he was uh, Detroit Red at the time Uh, he got caught uh, he kissed some random black person he got swept up in it as they were going down the street cheering yes the black fella won won." lots of examples of that in the system of racism white supremacy um, regardless of all of that (laughs) white people win Every day, as long as we're on the plantation. All of these uh, it's chicken George. We were just talking about Chicken George and re- it's Chicken George. It's Chicken George. That is a metaphor, but roots, uh it is uh plantation entertainment. That's the way that we should think of all of it. Plantation and particularly any of the violent stuff. We just had that shooting at Cor- at Molson Coors Brewery in Wisconsin. Doctor Welsing talked about that in you know, a system where we celebrate violence find ways of making recreational activities violent get children to participate in violent in violent activities get them 10 years old get out there and you know do some hitting sack that quarterback do some boxing all of that get out there and play some lacrosse you can whack them with the stick violent behavior being promoted dr Welsing talked about that Uh, how frequent regular that is or really how irregular it is how normalized that gets to be in a system of white supremacy Anyway, anyway. Uh, Gus, can I get 30 more seconds? He said 30 more seconds. We'll see. Yes, yes, sir. Let's see.
14: <laughs> uh, yes, I, uh, in a joking matter at first, uh, uh, text Mr. Clark uh, stating that uh, the president will invite the white male to the White House. And the next thing I know, in, in about, within about 48 hours, <laughs> he actually meaning the president actually had uh, thought of doing the very thing to inviting the uh the white male and I I heard I heard something about it in the article that I read that he uh uh of some of his practices of racism white supremacy in it. But uh yes, the the President is thinking about inviting the white male to the White House. I would like to see that take place. Yes.
11: No surprise, no surprise. It's election year. Why not get as much publicity? Four more years. Four more years. You get a winner, you want to hang out with winners. Of course, you want to hang out with losers. Of course, he should come hang out, get a picture with the heavyweight. Matter of fact, I got it. Put me on President Trump. Four more. I've been saying that since 2017. Four more years. They should, the day that they uh, do an announcement, remind people, pardon of Jack Johnson bring Mr. Uh, Fury in Jack Johnson pardon right remember who did that me keep America before and then he can take a picture he can have like Jack Johnson's cousin or something in the background Mr. Fury what well, they can even get Muhammad Ali even sure I'm sure they got a picture of Muhammad Ali and Bill Clinton they can put that up in the background only the champs come to the White House four more years four more years
14: Mm -hmm.
11: Uh, let's see 60531 Thomas in New York
3: Um, yeah I spoke to the firefighter about this and uh, to me this is a boxing is one of those sports where you show white supremacy more so than anything patriotism goes out the door uh, when it comes down to this so are white people patriots or are they white supremacists now this dude Tyson Fury isn't even an American So he'll go to the White House to be greeted by the president uh, when the American fight a loss, Deontay Wild is from Alabama. Uh, That just shows you that it has nothing to do with patriotism. Uh, It has only to do with, you
11: know, what they classify as white.
14: That's exactly my point.
11: (laughs) All of these would be wonderful reasons not to participate uh... not to have your children participate not to watch not gonna give out any money uh... out the door is a metaphor i didn't want to say but all of those would be great reasons and this has been pretty consistent. I think Thomas in New York and some others pointed that out with McGregor that you had folks. They weren't showing up uh, doing uh, like the Rocky movies where you show up and you got the the red, white and blue shorts and the red, white and blue shirt. Like, yeah, we're, we're going to root for the American. We're going to root for the black fella, Floyd Mayweather, Michigan. In the uh, uh. <laughs> Get that. Where is he born? At? I don't care. Get the white fella. We're with the white fella. That was their that was their conduct. Way that wasn't even ancient history. That was uh 2015, 2000, that was pretty recent. Whenever it was, yeah. Anyway, uh number again, six zero five three one three five one six four. The code 943 four 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 three pound press star six one if you would like to participate other folks who dialed the be in the Henry in Chicago, our narrator, much obliged. Always appreciate folks who are willing to do the heavy lifting, uh, working hard to do the narration, Henry in Chicago.
12: All right. Thank you, Gus. Uh, thank you. And, uh, greetings to all the callers and, uh, listeners on the line, <clears throat> uh, judge LeBlanc, uh, suspected racist, uh, now playing the victim, um, She's uh, now saying that she's getting death threats for using the word uh, or texting the word "nigger." Uh, whites love to, uh, you know, be victims when they get caught in their uh, acts of, you know, extreme racism or, you know, uh, upfront racism uh, in, in those manners. So um, that's no surprise there. Um, the border. The border expansion or the possible border expansion of so that area of oregon and north uh north uh north uh california with idaho um you know uh that's kind of reminiscent to what's happening here in illinois where in illinois uh majority of the non white black people live in uh Cook county. Uh, where you know the chicagoland area is and uh the rest of illinois is actually predominantly white uh you know all the way until you get to east st louis but yeah and so uh there was some talk years ago about you know trying to uh trying to secede the rest of illinois from cook county (laughs) so that didn't go too well uh because obviously, you know, who's gonna take the the name of Illinois? Is it gonna be the white people or is it gonna be you know the white people that live in the rest of Illinois or is it gonna be Cook County? So uh that didn't go too well and I don't see that going, you know, well uh either and I think the uh the uh the audio kinda expressed some of the concerns about uh about that. Um you know obviously white people love to dominate us but They also want their own separate living spaces as well. Um, The Wilder-Tyson Fury fight, uh, that's interesting, uh, the conversation you're having. Uh, $16 million just at the gate alone, Uh, to me, white people won, uh, because that $16 million is not going to a group of non-white black people Uh, that's going straight into white people's pockets. Uh, Wild is probably the only one. They may get a small, small percentage of it, but other than that, majority of that money is going to white people. And also, too, I don't know what the pay-per-view revenue is, but I'm pretty sure it's like 10 times greater than that, and uh, white people will be getting that, that money as well. So in my opinion, white people won. Uh, But, you know, what's also interesting, uh, what uh, what Richard said about uh, Tyson Fury being uh, invited, you know, possibly being invited to the White House and Thomas in New York talking about, you know, Fury not being an American. And that conversation came up uh, early in the program where I always said to be an American is to be white because, you know, uh, if you are a true American, then you uh, have the, you know, you're, you're supposed to have the protection and the liberties that an American citizen have. Well, obviously not white people don't have that here, uh, especially non white black people. So uh, to me, that's not American. I mean, I, yes, I have family who, you know, who lived here and ancestors who lived here, but they got treated the same way as well. So... Uh, That to me, you know, when you ask my definition of American, American to me is, is white. Um, That's all I have right now. I'm
11: mute my line. Much obliged. Uh, The, the judge in Louisiana, Judge LeBlanc reminded me of Catherine. And she looks a little bit like Catherine LeBlanc. I have to see if they're uh, related. Who's the former uh, governor? She was governor of Louisiana at the time of Hurricane Katrina, in fact widely criticized she did not win re-election many people submit that was a major contributing factor Uh, anywho former Judge LeBlanc in Louisiana two important points number one you got a white person who is engaged in behavior looks like what a racist would be doing calling black people niggers and and the rest of her, her commentary sounds like a racist. You are the judge. Uh, Do we get to go back and look at all of those cases? Like, does that automatic review? Like if you have to resign or you're terminated from office, if you're an enforcement official, a judge, a prosecuting attorney, anybody who is involved in any of what what they call it, the uh, criminal, Injustice system, criminal justice system, uh, legal arm of white supremacy, acronym I've heard before for laws. So anybody who has to leave a job. Faces any sort of uh, discipline as a result of their uh, conduct related to racism, white supremacy allegations founded or no like that should prompt an immediate review, maybe even a dismissal. I mean, you're talking about a judge. We don't think in her mind she was think. Up, oh, got a nigga defendant in here today.
4: Mm, mm, mm. mm.
11: Yep, this nigga's going. Yep, he's guilty. This nigga didn't. He, we don't think she was thinking that at all. Like <laughs> once, twice. And the other, in addition to the review, because I didn't hear that come up, you know, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Maybe she was, you know, presiding on the bench with these thoughts. The second thing, you have to go and look at the uh, texts right like there's a longer video, like 15 minutes I could have played that but I mean uh, but it's like a 15 minute video and she's been interviewed by a black person which makes it even more interesting so all you heard in the clip like all of this coming about the affair and all that if you look at the context Of when she said nigger. She's talking to this fella about their affair. And she's upset that he's been having sexual intercourse. With the cowbells. The cowbells. the cow. She's upset that he's been engaged in some sort of sexual activity. With a black female. That's who she calls a nigger. And if you continue. Because they have the text online. You can read them. If you look at the rest of the text exchange. She says. uh, I can't believe it. You did this and with a nigger. Think of the children it would have, uh judge leblanc what do you mean think of the children what 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 exactly did you mean you think they they might come out looking like our former president obama What, what what's the problem would have been more questions more you got to look at the text uh exchange on that one if you're a louisiana resident i would have, particularly if you have been in her courtroom oh yeah you got to look at the exchange uh to get like the full cut con- <laughs> context of what she said and does this sound like a white woman who's ignorant about racism if that's going to be the excuse again that you know white people are not conscious about white supremacy racism does this sound like a white woman who is just just a little ignorant you know she just didn't know Uh, the other thing about the secession Uh, The folks in or white people in Oregon and guns was one of the first things that they mentioned. We just had that shooting this week in Wisconsin was the first things that they mentioned. We need to redraw the state lines. I need my guns. And we got these immigrants hopping the border rapists. Uh, But election season that happened in 2012, I almost said last time, but I don't I don't remember talk of secession in 2016. But I do remember it. In 2012, that was the year of President Obama's sus- uh, successful reelection, and there were states then that were talking about seceding. We had a program about it. It was uh, Tennessee, and I think some of those other uh, states that are uh, like east of me, east and south uh, of me in the Tennessee region, that were talking about seceding from the Union, and you know they weren't going to put up with another four years of this Negro uh, in the White House, but that is I do remember that from 2012 white people talking about seceding uh, let's see uh, the number again 605-313-5164 decode 564 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate uh, other folks who dialed in if you have thoughts observations, questions to share, suggestions, uh, feel free. Uh, If there are folks we've missed at all and or other folks who have thoughts, observations, proceed. While folks are taking a moment to get their thoughts together, uh, I was preparing for the broadcasts on Friday, Neutralizing Workplace Racism. Anthony Farrell preparing for the broadcast and I saw Jordan Peele cowbell. I saw that Jordan Peele was doing a remake of Candyman, which is a not constructive uh, film that came out in the 90s, about 30 years ago. And I posted, oh, I wrote a review about the original film some years ago posted it a long time ago. I posted it, moved on about my business. And uh, I said in the, the posting, I said that I despise Mr. Peel's films, which I do. Get Out is one. He's got a number of them. Long film career. So I said, I despise his films. Uh, and someone responded and they said, oh, my goodness, why do you despise Jordan Peel? Words are important. I said, I did not say I despise Mr. Peel. despise his films oh I'm sorry you're right okay so why do you despise his films part of me I did not feel like it was almost a surprise like wow you have to have evidence for not liking not being a fan of Mr. Peel's film work and they mentioned get out specifically. like you didn't even like get out uh I guess if if I had to give an explanation at all, being surprised that I would have to come up with one, but if I had to provide one, I think he's in a tragic arrangement. Generally, that is enough to to undermine my thinking that this person is going to be accurate, uh, sincere, all of the above uh, in addressing white supremacy, racism that greatly will undermine their credibility for me. Uh, And I mean, it's just, it would be difficult for me to how serious am I to take this work uh, I could say a lot more, but like I said, I'm not. What am I to say? It's racial theater. That term was mentioned before. I've used it many times. It's been that's another term of significance. I think we used for a number of years on this broadcast. There are many aspects of racial theater. Just to include, ele- I mean, Candyman, the original includes elements. Of truth about white supremacy racism many television and programs uh, in fact all of them Mr. Fuller talks about that all the time uh, it would be difficult to find a television program uh, or movie but I mean it just make it more explicit where that'll be a direct part of the plot uh, and then we all can go laugh and giggle and eat our popcorn that's generally not something that I enjoy I guess my, my last comment on that would be forget out specifically I've been saying this for uh, two years now I'll keep saying it Uh, anytime I hear black people who enjoy or think well of the movie Get Out, not that we're talking about films, but anytime I hear that, just to myself, I say, you sound exactly like the white women in my yoga classes. They love Get Out too. Anything that white people are really excited about, and many, many white people were excited about Jordan Peele's work, that also makes me uh, suspicious. But yes, that's what I think immediately. Anytime I hear a black person, I just love get out and Jordan P you sound just like the white women in my yoga classes. Context of White Supremacy. Number six zero five three one three five one six four the code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, if there are folks we missed totally, uh, make sure we hear from you. Don't wait till the last minute. Uh, if you are there and or our other folks uh, who are with us, if you have additional comments, questions to share, proceed.
3: Oh, yeah, I did have something else um, to add um, to an article. And this stuck out to me, I thought of the show, because you did a report on a um, Pinsultory calling years ago where white people were not going to be the majority of the people in California by whatever year. And, um, therefore they're taking the word minority out of the, out of the, um, the, the, the law books. You can't call anyone a minority because, you know, so this one here, the article was, um, California politicians reinvent the dictionary. Again, California's added again, editing language to alter reality first San Francisco changed felon to justice involved person. Now, California will refer to at this youth instead as at promise use use. So instead of at this use, they're going to change it to at promise youth. instead of felon. They changed it to justice involved person. So that would make everyone that's involved in justice a felon, I guess. Um, so California, um, and also, they had an article this week, um, George Zimmerman sues Pete Booty Gig and Elizabeth Warren for defamation over their tweets about Trayvon Martin. Um, and uh, he's suing them for $265 million. What the tweet is that Elizabeth Warren posted is, my heart goes out to Sabrina Fulton and the Trayvon's family and friends. He should still be with us today. We need to end gun violence and racism. We need to build a world where all children, especially black boys, can grow up safe and free. And Pete Booty from what he wrote was, Trayvon Martin would be 25 today. How many 25th birthdays have been stolen from us by white supremacy, gun violence, prejudice, and fear? Black Lives Matter. So because of those two tweets, Mr. Zimmerman is suing them for defamation his character and um, I said only in a system of white supremacy could this even happen I mean um, but um, I checked out the Democrats who have zero chance Um, the the dynamics that's playing out is um, the Democratic National Party Um, they do not want to support Democratic Socialism which is Bernie Sanders platform and Elizabeth Warren's platform so uh, they are trying everything to keep the delegates close enough so when they have get to the convention they can have a broken convention and put the person in that they want to who I assume will be Hillary Clinton but you know we'll see but either way um you can see in the debate Bloomberg's you know he's there to take down Bernie um you know a rich Jew you know they, 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 you know just they, they mirror each other they just had two different political philosophies. Um, you uh, know, every time Bloomberg attacks, um, Bernie, you see Warren attack Bloomberg. So he's like, he, he can't, he's like, uh, he's not a politician. He's not as quick on his feet. So, you know, they get him with all his racism. And he's trying to point out the other people's racism, but he can't do it fast enough. Another thing I'm observing with the politicians is I, I don't miss Trump rallies unless you have a show Gus. Um, but, um, anytime someone tries to, and it hasn't been as bad this time as it was, but we haven't gotten into the, the, the heart of the, the season of election season. But anytime someone stands up to try to disturb the rally, what the people we start chanting at them is USA, USA. So making them seem like they're not patriotic, you know, it, it's, it's almost odd. It's, it's like, wow, like they're not <laughs> a citizen of the United States, you know, because they're against him. But, um, just that the way that plays out every, every rally, I noticed when at least one person, you know, would stand up and be against him. Um, the, the crowd floods them out with the chance of USA. And, um, just very interesting. I beat my mind. And these are all white people, by the way.
11: Mm, interesting. Uh, I remember when president Obama in 2008, when people would try to heckle at his rally, sometimes he would just address them directly. And wow. But, uh, sometimes the crowd would get up and do their chant. And I remember the, they would just use the election slogan. Yes, we can. This is 2008. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. I think both of those are are excellent retorts, particularly if you get a group chant in that way, it's just excellent. Cause you just are echoing the campaign slogan powerful. And then the U.S. that that's how we get your little jingoism going that patriotism I am race the anagram America Dr. Wilson used to talk about that's a powerful one too and that's better than you know coon or name calling or whatever that exactly you're not a patriot you're against America you're anti-American not patriot uh, I would appreciate if we could call people by their correct names uh, correct pronunciation All of that, I think uh, anything less is is just name calling, correct names, consistency. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Words are important. White people understand that. I I suspect strongly they will not be uh, talking about chance. Uh, Yes, we can. USA, I suspect it will not be in unison. Whites saying, yes, we are going to switch to at promise youth when discussing the likes of Trayvon Martin. Michael Brown Jr., Tamir Rice, Ayanna Stanley Jones. No, super predators. At-risk youth. Yes, yes. That at promise youth. Justice involved persons. He was out selling cigarettes for God's sake. He's a felon and a hoodlum, not justice involved person. I do not think that is going to catch on, but that is, again, recognizing the power of words, something we talk about on this program on a regular basis. That'll just be those. That's exactly what the people in Oregon are talking about. See, see, that's why we need to redraw the borders. You can do all of that. Take all of your at promise youth and all of your justice involved persons. We are going to Idaho and the rest of the folks up in Oregon. We are moving to Idaho. Uh, let's see. Other folks, uh, if you dialed in, if you have uh, observations, questions to share, star 6-1. Can I be heard? Uh, greetings, Imhan D.C.
13: Yes, sir. Greetings. Um, I wanted to about the white people changing I guess I don't know if it's policy, yeah, it is policies changing policies or changing the rules of uh, so not too long ago, just a few years ago, white people were talking a lot on YouTube and on the news and different places about white people going extinct, and that white people will be extinct soon. But here recently, they haven't been talking. Well, I know they still, they're still talking about it, but I think the videos are, are being deleted and blocked on YouTube because there was a time period where it was almost every few days another random white person would talk about white people going extinct and what they should do about it, kill black people. Um, but they would talk about white people going extinct. And, and there would be the most interest, well, it would, for me, it would be the most interesting conversation. Um, just listening to all these random white people talking about it and what their, their concern and their resolution, what they're going to do about it. Um, but I just find it very interesting that I can't find it as much or hardly any on YouTube. And they even changed the functions where you could see, um, what video was last posted you know, or, um, updated videos or something. Um, you can go in the order of the last videos that were posted that stopped functioning correctly. Um, right after that time period too, um, when, um, uh, there was talking about white people going extinct. And I, I do think that it's good that the, there's some title white people in this program. Um, so that on the search when you put it in on the search that it pops up under white people because people look up white people in different searches like YouTube or Google or whatever. And what pops up is a lot of very positive things about white people and very negative things about black people. Um, one white person in particular talking about um, trying to encourage white, um, black women to um, have sex with white men, yeah, but we need to counter it. Uh, yeah. Thank you
11: context of white supremacy cowbell very active very active for the broadcast that is no surprise that is the, that is what domination looks like where consistently where when white comes up it's something positive even if you're not talking about white people per se it'll be white lie, white as snow, pure white uh, and certainly as it relates to people it'll be something great and complimentary and all of that and in the exact opposite when it gets to talking about mug shots the report that they heard, that's what it'll be with black people, mug shots and gorillas apes, niggers, apes, alligators, coons and possums other folks, uh, lots of spectators uh, for the conclusion of Black History Month, I hope that means that you uh, have not experienced any uh, direct terrorism, abuse, other than you know, I guess pollution and that sort of thing hopefully you got great water filters, HEPA filters test your water but yes make an effort not to be a spectator be active we need folks uh utilizing implementing counter-racism thought speech actions and controlling of emotions again we'll be here on wednesday wednesday professor gross uh black female professor will be talking about her or uh focuses on one book, but she has written many books, including her most recent publication, Black Woman's History of the United States. Uh, We'll be talking about one of her other uh, very recent publications as well, but that is Wednesday. Uh, Other folks, thoughts, uh, questions, observations? May I be heard? Greetings caller in Florida.
27: Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to that's the hosts, the listeners and callers. Um, I wanted to start out. Uh, I don't know if anyone's noticed this act. I think it's done rarely, um, but I've seen on certain shows or like uh, panels where when racism is discussed, uh, a white person usually will ask, a non-white person something that involves a scenario. Um, Like, well, would you do this if you saw a white person? Would you help them? Almost in a way to try to make them look like they're racist. Uh, and And I developed a term called scenario trapping. And... I, I rarely, once again, I rarely see this happen, but white people, they'll do this. Um, and on one person's radio show, they said, well, if, if there was a four-year-old white child, would you would you kick the child or something? It, it'll be white people asking these questions to black people. Uh, so that's a question I wanted to put out there. Um, my uh, other observations were, I've been reading up on this, once again, the, the, uh, this article, news article said the County Lachlan County is reading up on his racist past and they've been having these volunteers looking through over 39,000 documents trying to, I guess, decipher the curse of writing from uh, centuries ago on the list of the, the lynching victims once again. But, I do want to know who exactly did these lynchings because they said one person, and this is interesting that they included this in the article. They, they lynched one person that they found under the bed of a white woman. So the cowbell, uh, and they said that the person, they attempted to lynch the person, but the, the news broke and then they shot the person. So they, they found all these kinds of, um, uh, records of just mainly black people just existing and being confronted by a mob and, uh, being murdered, lynched, shot by multiple different means. Uh, as far as the, the judge, that is very interesting. I think I did read the article about the exchange where she was, she said something like, well, um, uh, I wouldn't betray you. Or I wouldn't step out on you at least for a nigger or something like that. And, and I, I'm glad that came out because once again, see a lot of people are confused. A lot of victims are confused about the mass participation of white women when it comes to practicing racism. If not, it's even more intense. Okay. Um, and that the, I think there was a white woman that was speaking that said, hey, well, this person is a Christian. This person is a judge. You know, what are y'all talking about? This is not going to influence her decisions on the bench and, you know, in the church or whatever. Like, what are y'all talking about? That's just standard, in my opinion, codification, racism being practiced. And lastly, the uh, the comparison between uh, Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby, I've noticed that whenever they want to exemplify a white man being uh, a person who engaged in rape, sexual assault, they tend to have, once again, like the bottom tier appearance white men. Uh, Roger Ailes, if anybody remembers that, that was a white man that was, I guess, over Fox News. And they made, I think they made a movie about that. And it's, it's a guy named Lou Pearlman, who I don't think he had anything to do with uh, sexual assault, but he swindled money out of the, uh, I think, group in Sync or something like that. And they made a documentary about that. But James Franco, Ben Affleck, and, you know, the, the, the kind of white men that are seen as attractive by women or females and women, you know, White women, non-white females, they tend to only set focus on the certain ones. I wonder if anybody noticed that pattern as well, because uh, it's a lot. It's a long list of them that have been accused of these things, as well as in the music industry. Because another Calabas situation where uh, Janet Jackson performed at the Super Bowl, and we all remember what happened with that. But Justin Timberlake can. I, forward in his career but chris brown gets accused but justin bieber comes out there's a video with him making a racist joke saying uh you know black people and chainsaws run nigga nigga or whatever and it's a white woman in the background encouraging the joke and he's on another video saying uh he's with the kkk but this person is still able to make music But, of course, we're in a system of white supremacy. Um, But that's that's all I have to uh, share. Thanks for allowing me to speak.
11: What's the uh, term again? Scenario. The term you mentioned, it's scenario. Oh, scenario trapping, trapping. That was it. Scenario trapping. I have seen that type of. Exchange before where they'll ask a black person that if you saw I think what I've seen if you saw uh, if you saw a white fella and they were broke down on the side of the road and they had uh, a confederate flag bumper sticker would you stop to help them that'll be the type where I'll make sure I'm understanding correctly like they'll ask a black person and be like now would you stop them and see if you don't see we're all prejudiced see see is that the type of thing you're talking about
27: exactly yes sir
11: yes sir got it yes I've seen that many many times men all of that if you don't understand system of white supremacy you may I remember those like absolutely that's right we are all a little prejudiced because I sure wouldn't Uh, let's see the uh, oh yeah the prosecution thing super important so I, I hope people look at the text messages and I'm not surprised in terms of the excuse uh making that is done on a pretty uh consistent basis, uh in terms of well this person is not a racist, she's a Christian, he's a Christian, whatever it is, Jewish, whatever, they'll say anything. Uh but they're definitely not a racist. This text exchange is you know, maybe she had a few alcoholic beverages, she was probably under some stress too. Lots of excuses. Uh, Did anybody actually see that PBS uh, lynching documentary? I know it's, you know, kind of new. I I haven't seen it myself. I was just curious. Anybody actually seen it? I'll take that as a no. If anybody else, check it out. If you think it's constructive, uh, feel free to share. If I make time to view, I will share a thought or three. Um, I mentioned on the broadcast, I think we had a caller who said that this is for workplace racism. We had a caller she said that a coworker he would sign off on workplace emails, communiques, he would sign off Ted Bundy, who's a white serial killer. And, and we're talking in my view that's right out of uh The Gift of Fear, Gavin De Becker. We read that in the book club uh, a couple months back, but being in a work environment where you are literally taking on the persona and identification of a serial killer that right there is a sign of someone who could commit a violent act write that down I said that yesterday put that in your workplace journaling if this person ever seems like they're upset disgruntled like hey I would print out about 15 of those emails. Yours truly, Ted Bundy. This person has a history of identifying with serial killers, and now he's walking around being surly and grumpy. I don't know if he owns a firearm, but is this promoting office safety? End with a question. Ted Bundy does have a Netflix documentary. I said that yesterday because exactly what I said before, whether it's boxing, football, uh, endless Netflix documentaries about serial killers and hacking up people, the system of white supremacy promotes killing and death. You have to, gotta to kill up a whole lot of black people in this system, dominated by non-white people. The Netflix uh, documentary is "Conversations with a Serial Killer: The Ted Bundy Tapes." Uh, I have not seen it. Uh, I don't feel like I have to watch every "Hack 'Em Up, Kill 'Em" Netflix documentary, but I, I thought I had seen like the pre you know they have stuff come up on the scene where I thought I had seen it before like yeah it's and it's lots of them it's not just Ted but it's tons of those uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy Son of Sam it just goes on and on I'm just doing the US ones we're not even getting to you know the UK and all the other white serial killers that they got all over the globe they got tons of them that right there we probably wouldn't have that if we were in a system of justice uh, other folks comments questions they want to make sure they get in Folks are still spectating, we'll give maybe another ten minutes or so and we will call it a broadcast, uh if folks are just spectating for their Saturday evening. Maybe they really did take the Wilder loss pretty hard. Uh we will be here on Wednesday. Professor Gross, looking forward to talking about her book, uh the one specifically, but if you have read uh Women's Black Women's, Black Women's, Black Women's, black women's History of the United States, uh you can feel free to dial in Get a question in about that get some more information I'm sure she would love to chat it up on that uh, and to promote as well so that people get uh, as many of her uh, books as possible but that should be Wednesday 8pm Eastern 5pm uh, Pacific I'm not sure if the iTunes feed uh, has corrected or not it looks like it's updated at least I can go and you know listen but I'm not sure if it's working for uh, other folks and working consistently where they can access material but uh at least I've been uploading and it's current. Uh it's worked for me a few times when I've tried it. All of that is white people permitting beyond iTunes content should be uploaded and current at uh SoundCloud, Google Play, Black Talk Radio Network, uh many different outlets. Our investor, uh Mr. Fox in the UK, uh years of just extraordinary effort in uploading the material to YouTube. Uh we're just A large number of Cal's listeners uh, would not have found the broadcast if it were not for his efforts at uploading the content at YouTube. Much obliged to his years uh, of uh, hard labor. Uh, Much appreciated. Whew, but we should be here Wednesday. If uh, folks are interested, yoga retreat again, the deadline is today. So if you're interested in coming to uh, Toronto, May 21 through May 24, Thursday through a Sunday, yoga, plant based meals, uh, counter racist workshops, meal workshops, uh, go ahead. Uh, deadline to register is today. Uh, you can drop an email until justice at Gmail dot com. If you have questions, need any additional information Let me know today, but we are uh, getting close uh, to being full. Uh, Just drop an email and let me know if you are looking forward to joining us or need a question answered to make a pertinent decision about whether you will be there. But looking forward to joining, whether you're coming or not again, passport, passport, get your passport. Uh, Folks still spectating anything else they want to make sure they share.
3: I did make an observation this week, and um, it comes from um, the television, however. Um, my wife was watching the show, and it had to do with people going out on dates. So there was a white couple, and they went on a first date at a um, place where um, you sit down, and someone comes out, and you it's like a paint and pour. You know, they draw a picture, and you're drawing it on a canvas, and you're copying what they're doing. And um, you know, the but the the person comes out that's hosting the painting for the 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 artist is a black woman and she brings out this black male and he's the person they're painting, so he's butt naked. So, um, they both have to paint his penis. And all I could think is Wells in moment, you know, how um, she's fetishing over him and the white guy is like, you know, I can't compete with this, you know, I mean, how's this thing going? And, you know, as they go to the morph line. So um, she draws him with a super huge penis and the white person draws it with a, a smaller penis. So, um, you know, they, they <laughs> it, it was just the commentary behind it. it was just a total welding moment. And I could just, so I could think is I wish Dr. Weldon could see this. I would love to hear her input on this because just the psychology of white people.
11: Much obliged, Thomas, in New York, Dr. Welsing. Greatly missed, greatly missed. But she did give us a lot while she was here. Be uh, grateful for what we got. Let's see. Our caller on the Skype line. Caller on the Skype line. Did you have commentary for uh, our listeners? You should be with us.
14: Hi there. I just wanted to
12: comment on like the Harvey Weinstein sex scandal, and there seems to be like a pattern. It's like Bill, um, Bill Clinton, when he had his you know Mona, Monica Lewinsky thing going on. It's like it's
14: like they cover for each other. They pay each other's um, legal bills, and then it's now it's Harvey Weinstein's turn.
12: So it's just it's just the fact that white people, when they when they commit a crime, they cover for each other and they pay each other's bills. So it just seems like it's just seems like it's a big collective thing among them.
14: Yeah. So that's it.
11: Much obliged. Uh, metaphor, uh, just used. Metaphor, just used. This is amazing. Oh, sorry,
14: sorry about that
11: it happened no apology needed no apology needed it happens to you know many of us still learning and just being mindful that's the most important thing words are important so we're just you know being mindful about what words we use that's uh i'm still learning myself uh the other folks uh with us have questions observations comments they want to make sure they shared can i be heard Han dc am i still breaking up or is my line cooperating yeah. now
13: um, yeah, it's cooperating now, but yeah, in the very beginning, uh, when the program started, uh, your line was almost, com- well, it was completely out for me. Oh, okay. So, but so yes yeah, it's currently working uh, fine.
11: Thank you for the uh, email, sir.
13: Yes, sir. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to say about that white guy I was mentioning, um, well, whenever I type in white people on YouTube and I look up the most updated videos. A lot of times this guy, uh, Cohen Nannik pops up on YouTube and, um, that's the guy I was talking about. One of the people who are encouraging black women to have sex with white males. Um, let me read his, uh, I just wanted to read his latest one. Okay. Uh, one of his latest is don't be a black bitch. Um, okay. What was the other one that I wanted to read? Um, I can't, it was a black woman wants to have a, Oh, here it is. Um, black woman wants two relationships with white. Wait, I have to, I'm sorry. i my, anyway, it was saying that, um, a black woman wants to have a relationship with two white males at the same time. Well, anyway, so this is what pops up when I type in white people, and I know that black people um, do research or do just you know just type stuff. Everybody types stuff in, um, but p- black people are, will search white people in the um, in the in the search um, options on on these different search engines. And anyway, um, that's one of the things that pops up, and he gives all this advice. All of his content is is um, dedicated to what I just mentioned, um, encouraging black women to have sex with white men. And, uh, I think it's important that, well, it's going to continue, but we can at least point out the, a number of the, um, the people, but, um, yeah, uh, white people wouldn't be able to do this though, if they weren't here or if they weren't in all the other places. And I also want to say they, they might call themselves American, but they also call themselves African. They call themselves South American. They call themselves Caribbean. They call themselves Australian. They call themselves Asian, but they're none of those things. So uh, thank you.
11: Uh, we had another caller, but I just, uh, if you mean in terms of posting the content, like the person that you described on YouTube or whichever platform, posting content, encouraging, um, black people to be engaged in incorrect sexual behavior or any sort of, uh, incorrect behavior. You're talking about sexual incorrect, sexual behavior specifically, but any sort of destructive, non-constructive conduct, uh, in this system. Oh man, it's 2020. Like I absolutely think every single individual who is classified as white, they could vacate the entire Western hemisphere and they would have no problem in 2020, like distributing that content. Like they've got, <laughs> I just said, Netflix, <laughs> they got Netflix, they got their satellites, they got their cell phones. Like it would be very easy. Uh, they could open up a few, uh, what is it? Venmo cash app uh, sites and pay a few victims to produce the content themselves. Cause you got a lot of non-white people who promote that same sort of non-constructive content too. So they could easily do that unless I'm mistaken. Uh, let's see our person at two, eight, nine, nine, two, eight, nine, nine. Does you have commentary to share? You should be with us.
8: Hi, Gus. May I be heard? Crystal. Hello?
11: We can hear you. Hello? We can hear you.
8: Okay. I'm sorry. I couldn't hear. I, um, apologize about that. Um, I just wanted to comment on the last caller's um, on his message. I have been on YouTube and I have seen the person that he is referring to, and I think that any uh, non-white person that ever you know saw any of his videos, that particular white male um, comes across—he he's a um, like a sexual deviant, and it seems to be that that particular topic that the caller was describing is something that he is. Some sort of like obsession, but I think that any uh, non-white female with you know um, that is using her brain, computer would easily be able to see that this, that the guy or this I can't recall what his name was, but that he's some sort of um, like a pervert or some sexual deviant because, as the caller mentioned, that's pretty much all what all of his videos you know are about, and uh, I've seen some of the comments and seen some you know, non-white females seem to have like some sort of, um, you know, desperate, you know, obsession, you know, trying to get like hints and and tips to, you know, try to, you know, snag a a white male. But I I really didn't have uh, too much to say. I just wanted to kind of comment on the, um, last caller's, uh, topic.
11: Area eight cowbell to see how active the cowbell was today for people that, uh, Maybe haven't been listening as long. There is a reason. That is a rule. Area eight dominates. We had lots of spectating, but area eight, man. Oh, I'm ready to. I'm. There's. I'm not saying this as as a judgment or anything. I'm just pointing. This has been a years for almost the entire 11 years that we've been here. Much more excitement about area eight and just things that happen with regards to sexual activity between whites and non-whites I just said that yesterday with Anthony Farrell and the workplace racism shooting with as much of a problem as workplace racism is there should be equal enthusiasm for all areas of people activity workplace racism the other things there's a reason area 8 is not something we discuss on the Saturday program even though it will come up regardless but yeah uh, any other topics folks had make sure that they wanted to comment on before we conclude? We'll assume folks are satisfied. Again, we should be here on Wednesday if you are able to check out the PBS documentary on Lennon Lacey. That'd be Calvell again. If you're able to check out the uh, document or the PB, yeah the PBS documentary, uh, let me know. I will attempt to watch it myself. Uh, see if it is a constructive investment of time and energy. Uh, if folks have a thought about the retreat, let me know. Uh, looking forward to constructive time, doing some yoga, going to visit Toronto in the spring. Mm-mm-mm. Should be fun. Uh, If you need details, have questions, uh, you can untiljustice at gmail.com. Drop an email and I will do my best uh, to answer any questions or give any extra details you might need for folks who should be joining us for the retreat. uh, Once the deadline is done and we have a definite number of who will be coming to hang out with us, I will send an email with an update and. All of the info that we can be looked forward to for what will be going down uh, in three months, basically. Much obliged for folks participation. Hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening. Uh, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy for Many, many reasons. Uh, Again, Harriet A. Washington, uh, a number of amazing books, but the one that we read most recently, she did mention noxious alcohols and cigarette smoking uh, as a form of environmental racism uh, and how those products are deliberately placed in areas, not like Portland, not like Seattle, placing those types of elements. She talked about fast, uh, fast food restaurants, too. Uh, Placing those types of uh, restaurants and products in areas with a lot of black people, non-white people. This is being done deliberately uh, to erode our health and vitality to solve the problem. Sobriety would be best. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, driver or passenger. Doing the little things uh, that we can to stay safe. Uh, If you are driving you are sober, buckled, and you are not on your cell phone. Uh, just making sure we do not give out easy excuses to be molested, harassed while we are in a motor vehicle. With that, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately Cow signing out thanks all for tuning in test your water. Get those test strips. Test that water. Kyle signing out. Thanks all for tuning in.
13: Nigga,
27: you so brainwashed.
13: I'm a victim, no brother. Problem.
27: You're
17: a victim. Yeah. I'm up. a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>
2: 18 plus.